Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, featuring the talents behind Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, and Mog's Christmas. Happy December, Squigglyites and Squigglyettes. We're here for one last podcast of 2023, and it's going to be jubilant. You betcha. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by the plucky Steve Anderson. Although that's actually kind of presumptuous of me, I have no idea if you're feeling plucky or not. Steve, how would you rate your pluck level out of 10? Out of 10 plucks, I would say I am the the toppermost of the pluckermost. I am very plucky. I'm very, yes, very, very plucky. Um, yeah, very, it's, it's Christmas. There's, there's, there's glad tidings in the air. There's, there's urchins running around the street with smiles on their faces. There's all kinds of D- Dickensian fun. It's amazing. I love Christmas. It's wonderful. Ho, ho, hello. Fantastic. That sounds just plucky enough. To knock out a podcast with as middling metrics as ours. <laughs> well, it's been a nice winding down of the year. We last caught up in person at the Manchester Animation Festival, I think just over a month or so ago. Good fun was had by all, as far as I'm aware. I hated it. There may have been disasters, you know, that I wasn't there for, but... <laughs> yeah, all behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was it was great to see you. It was great to catch up. It was great to uh, to to have the, the squiggly fun. The the squiggly quiz was <laughs> was in full force with its uh, usual kind of. Uh, there, I, feel, I feel there are three hosts of the squiggly quiz. There's you and I, and then there's technical fuck ups. Uh, now, technical fuck ups <laughs> is my is is my favourite person who comes along and just ensures that no matter how hard we how much effort we put into this quiz. Uh, it just, there's always something that just happens. But thankfully, we have the best audience. I think the best audience of of the festival is that excited Squiggly Quiz audience because they're all raring to get their hands on the prizes and to answer absolutely absurd questions uh, and to walk away with uh, one of 400,000 Funko Pops uh, we were given this year. Boy, did I feel like a twat. When I came with my bag of, of squiggly procured goods and I had actually thought, oh, I'll get a Funko Pop because they do like a Pinocchio one. Everyone loved Pinocchio. And there were, what, 50 yeah. <laughs> Pinocchio Funko Pops that Funko had uh, gifted us? Well, that was it. I, was, I said, oh, that was a good use of the squiggly budget. <laughs> I was like, oh, Netflix have sent us some stuff, Ben. And, and you were like, oh, I'll, go, I'll just pop into, I'll pop into a shop and buy some things. We'll find some stuff. And I saw the Funko Pop and I was like, oh, maybe I should have been more specific with with what we've actually been sent. <laughs> oh, but somebody walked away with that little Geppetto and it made their it made their day, presumably. Well, they cleared the table. Yeah. Like jackals they were. They descended upon it. I mean, the new system with the quiz that we've had for the last couple of years, I think this particular kind of thing where it's, people answer the questions using their mobiles. Um, they're mobiles, fucking hell. <laughs> As if that's a necessary differentiation. They're phones. And you can actually, you can rank the teens, but you can also rank the individuals. So we kind of got everyone 
got like a second swipe at the table. So, you know, by team and then by individual ranking. But also we didn't want to have to carry anything home. I think one guy just like looked me right in the eyes and picked up like three things and just went back to his table. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's, you know, three less things to throw away or take home myself. <laughs> It was a good haul this year. I mean, it always is, but we had some, uh, yeah, some fun goodies. It's always, it's always good, and and I'm glad we have that new system because there were maybe two or three years on the trot where we bring the same tired old prizes that would, that would sit on the table and just wouldn't be taken because there was no system to get rid of them apart from chucking them in the bin, which is a very good system. But um, we'd, we'd we'd bring them back every year. Uh, and they just sit there and they're just like dusty sun faded family guy episode guides. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The specific sort of fuck uppery <laughs> that was kind of splendid. And it was, it really actually kind of tapped into why the, our crowd is always so brilliant. Mm. Usually I try and do a sound round and we've done stuff. I think last year it was the one where I took video game versions of popular animation music, like theme songs or songs from Disney films. And like, this is, you know, a whole new world, except when you're playing the level on the Game Boy. Can people guess that that's the song? And uh, some of them were pretty easy. Some of them were pretty, like, hard to scrutinize. I think some of those old video game tie-in composers really took some poetic liberties. Or they were just incompetent at transcribing the notation, which I would say is probably more accurate. <laughs> this year was to take scenes from films that were dubbed into different languages, as films basically always are for the international market. And, you know, depending on, we have a pretty international audience, it could very well have been audio from the version of the film they had grown up with. It wasn't completely impossible. But also I tried to pick scenes where there would have been like little tells, you know, in, in the the rhythm of the dialogue and the exchange. So you could tell, oh, this is a scene from Toy Story, but it's in Norwegian. <laughs> So that would have been, you know, that was the plan. I think that we we managed to get through that for like two rounds or two questions <laughs> worth. And then we got to like South Park in, I think, German. And I think that quite a high percentage of people guessed that correctly. So then on to the next one, the clip plays and it's South Park in German again. <laughs> and what then ensued was a kind of like feedback loop we recorded in where just every question for the rest of the round was for some reason, just that South Park in German clip. <laughs> but the answers of course were for the, the clips that it was meant to be. So at that point you can't sort of go back in and edit the, the quiz again. I no. think that would have stalled things a bit too much. So we just kind of handed it over to the audience, like, okay, we know it's just going to be the same clip from South Park again. See if you can guess the answer anyway. The sort of penultimate one was a scene from, like, Coraline, and, like, about 10 people just randomly guessed Coraline, yeah. which was pretty impressive to just pull it out of their ass. The last one would have been a clip from Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, what was it, like, 70% just guessed that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was like a huge that percentage. That was supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in, it was incredible. And because that, what we did afterwards is we would then play the clip on YouTube because I felt awful. I was looking across at you thinking, oh, my God, because you sent me this round and you created folders with the original audio, <laughs> the the answer, the, 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 the dubbed audio, the answers, the video clips, and it was all neat in all these folders. And I was like, brilliant, this is fantastic. Meticulous. This would be dead easy for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I put it all together. 
for some reason, we just got German South Park throughout the whole thing. So I'm playing, <laughs> I was looking over at you and you, you, you were, what? And then we just kind of, I don't know, I don't know what happened, but we just went along with it and it was good fun. We made our peace with it. I think so. We had to, God. <laughs> but I think some people thought it was a bit, they thought we were just kind of, this was like a joke round or something. And they're kind of, because people mm. afterwards were like, oh, that was really funny. Well done. We were, well done. Well, God, we weren't, you know, that wasn't a bit. That was just, that was incompetence. <laughs> that wasn't any sort of, that wasn't planning. <laughs> but um, when we play the, so what we'd do is we'd then play this German South Park um, and then we'd show like Norwegian Toy Story. And I locked eyes with the Norwegian person in the the audience who looked at me as if to go, I would have got points for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> this angry Viking lady, <laughs> furious um, at uh, at the fact that she'd missed out on that. But yeah, fair play to everyone for writing uh, Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Wear Rabbit. That was amazing. At the end of the quiz, Aaron comes up to us and he was like, honestly, Ben, I mean, that foreign language round... That just completely perplexed me. I didn't realize how bad I was at foreign languages. They all sounded German to me. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, ha, 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 But no, he was completely in earnest. Like, everyone in the room, like, except him, <laughs> like, picked up on what had happened. And he, I think, like, legitimately thought he was listening to a clip from a different movie with each question, even though it was like the most South Parky sounding German, like a dialogue you could imagine. <laughs> like, is it from Aladdin? I don't know. <laughs> You've already seen the clip. We don't, because when the South Park originally came along, of course, then it was fine because it was meant to be that question. So everyone had seen the clip. <laughs> like they all knew the exact part of, of the, you know, iconic first episode of South Park that it was from. New, newly apparent. So perhaps that contributes a bit to, to one's faculties and uh, general. A hundred percent. That's the reason he had a he had a, <laughs> a baby literally there. I mean, fair play bringing a baby to an animation festival. You know, it's uh, it, it's it's great, but yeah, it does scramble your brains a little bit. And um, boy, were his brains <laughs> scrambled. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it was it was good fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Empty, empty quiz prize table and lots of happy faces. That's all we want at the end of the day. Next year, uh, maybe we will do it without a technical hitch. But I said that last year. I think technical hitches are kind of part of the tradition of the squiggly slash math <laughs> yeah. uh, hybrid events. Going back to the sort of early days. Actually, it always, it always did used to run smoothly. The first few years, like the screening and the quiz. And then, like, I think by the fourth edition my old laptop was starting to get like really clunky. And so it would start to like freak out like five minutes before the screening was meant to start. And it's like, I don't know what an HDMI port even is anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Just shut down. So someone like Greg or Jen would have to swoop in with like their own laptop and we'd have to like hurriedly like transfer the screening files onto it. My personal favorite was when it was a tech guy, not someone to do with the festival, someone to do with um, the venue, and uh, was really, really kind of aggrieved that uh, he had to kind of come in and sort of... What the, the long-running issue we used to have with the screening was we would set it up via an HDMI cable, and that would then, instead of running the sound through the speakers, 
it would run the sound actually out of the projector. Like the projector had like this little tinny speaker, which is kind of no good. Like you actually do want like stereo loud sound. You don't want to hear sort of like sound kind of coming from the ceiling. And so I had remembered, okay, the way they do it is there's a sound board to the side. You run a separate cable into the audio output on the laptop. And that way you get the nice, you know, rich sound coming through and this you know, image comes through the projector. I, I did the worst thing you could do to some a, a professional who has a very kind of niche specialty, which was as he came in, I explained to him from memory, so this is what I think we need to do uh, if you have a cable for this. Oh, did he not like that? <laughs> he, did, <laughs> he did not care for like, and you know, I'm trying to be fucking, because usually I show up, you know, usually like half an hour before, and then someone else will show up like five minutes before. So it's always a bit of a kind of mad rush. So, you know, he did get it kind of working, but he was in a bit of a sulk. And then he's like, okay, you're all set up. Like we tested it, you know, played a bit of footage. Sounds coming through great or perfect. He goes, all right, well, have a good screening. And then he sort of takes a few steps away from the soundboard, thinks to himself, and then he walks back to the soundboard and flicks a switch and then starts walking toward the exit. Uh, wait, 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 wait. What did you just flick? You're just like, oh, it's nothing. <laughs> so sure enough, the audience fill in and we start the screening. There's no fucking sound. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, maybe it just shit the bed for some other reason, but I have a feeling it's to do with that switchy flip, but I didn't see which one it is. This soundboard has 8 billion switches. <laughs> Yeah, it's like Abbey Road on on wheels. It's like <laughs> I think probably at that point, you know, Greg came in to sort of help out, and he was like, "Yeah, it was working fine. Now the sound's just gone." At this point, the audience is already in the screening, right? So Greg's like, "Okay, I'll take a look at the soundboard. What, why is this off?" And he flicks the switch back on. <laughs> Sound comes booming through. <laughs> It would always get there in the end, and I think that little bit of shonk is what gave it its charm. Mm. And what I really liked about the the screenings in that space, because it's usually at night, and by night I mean like after five in the evening, like it's usually sort of pitch black by then. And you have this screen, but sort of all around it, you have these sort of like walls that are all just glass panes, like just big windows. So you are just kind of looking out over this plaza of various buildings and offices and stuff. And it actually gives it kind of the, the feeling of like an outdoor screening, mm. which I quite like that atmosphere. We couldn't really do it last year because the screening was at like two in the afternoon. So it was still sunny out. So we did it on like the big TV instead that year, but this year it was evening again. So we did it on the projector again. I'm like, okay, let's see, <laughs> let's see how this goes. And we plugged it in and we plugged the audio cable in and it was all just fine. Mm. And I'm like, Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> Waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it never did. It just went really smoothly. Um, so, oh, well, maybe we'll compensate in the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> there was an issue, I suppose. I, I took it a bit more to heart. There were some of the filmmakers were there, and none of them were bothered by this. And I, well, by none, almost none. <laughs> Something I, I, I picked up on was, you know, because I'm quite familiar with the films that I'd picked. You know, I they were films that I'd, I'd seen a bunch of times and, you know, I'd watched them again a few times, putting the screening together. What we tend to do, we don't do it from like DCPs or things like that. We just basically edit it together into a projection file and play that. And that's usually pretty smooth. Standard kind of compression, what you would have for not broadcast necessarily, but certainly something like Vimeo. 
But because of the nature of the room and the projector and whatnot, I think doing it from DCPs would be kind of overkill and sort of unnecessarily complicated. Something that I did sort of notice, though, watching it through the projector, if you were to be really familiar with the films, you would like pick up on a little bit of detail being lost in some of the sort of darker areas of the image. And I imagine that's probably just like a contrast setting. Mm. It's essentially the kind of effect, if you were to like look at video or an image and you know crank up the contrast a bit, you, you do lose sort of details in darker or brighter areas. And I was a bit like, oh, that's a shame because, you know, there's little bits of like, you know, there's some really nicely drawn grass in this film. <laughs> and so, you know, but again, like I say, pretty much none of the filmmakers were at all bothered, except for one. <laughs> they were so aghast that the uh, the color grade of their film just had presented a little bit like, you know, uh, incorrectly, perhaps. Oh, gosh. And uh, the audience needed to know this. And, you know, I can kind of understand being a bit frustrated. I've been to screenings where, you know, my film doesn't look the way it's meant to look. But I think there's a little part of me that's like, I could get up and make a scene, but of course I won't. <laughs> And I think that in a situation like that, when you're, you know, have a piece of work programmed in a fringe event as part of a festival, the festival having not selected your film, but this is an excuse for people to get to see it, then maybe you focus on that element of it. Hmm. Gift horse in the mouth kind of thing. Basically that. I think that, yes, also perhaps that contrast issue, it also highlighted some macro blocking that wouldn't have been visible if you were just watching it on a laptop. No. You know, I don't really care for that either. But again, no one else really was picking up on it or seemed to mine. Hmm. And I think that there's a kind... I was talking with um, Louis from um, Dice. He usually comes up to Math, and he was saying how much he always really likes the squiggly screening, which is very nice to hear. But he also you know, was saying, like, you know, there's a rustic quality to it. It feels kind of underground. And usually that's kind of a nice pairing with the types of films that we uh, that we play there. So I think most people are a bit more sporting about it. I think they kind of get into the appropriate spirit of it. But yeah, generally speaking, great crowd. Nice. I don't suppose it's that thing that filmmakers get where they don't see the what the audience see. They only see the imperfections. There's always going to be the risk of you know, finding fault with your work just by virtue of seeing it projected on a large canvas. Mm. You know, you can get as close as you like to the computer screen or watch it on as big a TV as you can. But seeing it in a big proper cinema or on even just a sort of like, you know, medium-sized projection screen, it's a different beast. Yeah. The youth of today, uh, (laughs) you know, they don't know they're born, Stephen. You know, when I was starting up in those ancient days of like 2009, uh, festivals still demanded that you submit your film on a digi-beta cassette, which is something like maybe, I don't know, 480p resolution. Now, at this point, we're already making our films in HD. You know, we you know, they're, they're exported out at 1080p. So for as long as I've been making films, my first film was in 2008. That was the standard already, you know, it was 2K. But festivals just didn't have the tech for that. DCP wasn't really a thing, I think, until the sort of early 2010s. You could have your film transferred to actual film, but that cost like a ridiculous amount. And it was never really something, you know, I, I really was prepared to do. And so it was just a, a terrible kind of option. It's like, okay, you, you're having your film downscaled to like 90s era SD <laughs> video. 
and then it's projected on a giant screen. So not only is it half the quality it's meant to be, it's like a hundred times the size that you used to. <laughs> I remember like going to the, the Cologne Comedy Festival with uh, the Naughty List, and it looks, my film looks so dreadful. Like, just in terms of, like, you know, being washed out and, like, losing so much detail. And it was actually the first time I saw what it looked like on DigiBeta. I'd only seen it on, like, a little TV at the place that did the transfers. But seeing it on a big... And I felt so, like, sort of sad and kind of let down. But, like, there was no way around it. No. And again, no one else noticed, of course, because they didn't have the HD version for comparison. And, you know, half of them, I think, you know, probably didn't give a shit either way. It was, you know, there was a cartoon that made them sort of chuckle in German. <laughs> that was all it really needed to do. But I'm saying, oh, the artistry, <laughs> the line work. You know, that's one of those films that looking back now, watching it blurry kind of <laughs> covers up some hurt. So... <laughs> In a way, I should have embraced that. I remember when, uh, when we, when we, you know, first really got our claws into Squiggly together. It was around the time when we'd go to Annecy, and it was always um, Annecy. Ah, oh, what was it called? The one that Nick, Nancy, and Bill put together. Annecy Plus. Annecy Plus. Yes, and that was a bedsheet up in uh, at the Cafe <laughs> de, de Arts or around in a dodgy pub somewhere. Uh, a back alley with the bed sheet up and then you'd have like you know the creator of adventure time in the audience just watching some of his his work or you know nina paley and people like that all like you know dotted around but just having an amazing time watching their work on some uh i presume old computer speakers and a <laughs> projector and everyone's on varying levels of quality of, of outdoor furniture. And then halfway through it, uh, people are just people who turn up with the musical instruments and have a go and never want to get drunk. And it was just such an amazing atmosphere. And I see, you know, that's, that, that's kind of like DIY screening is such a, it's such a powerful and an amazing community offering really you know when you see your work in the cinema it's plush and it's it's nice and it's professional and it's a competition and there's an award and blah 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 oh lovely and we all love that absolutely but what the squiggly screening offers and what this offered is that kind of that kind of like you know community atmosphere what what louis was describing presumably and i think that's something quite special so yeah you might have it might look a little bit gray in places or the bed sheet might not be the correct aspect ratio, <laughs> but the idea of DIY screenings are just absolutely awesome and amazing and a brilliant things come of them. There's always good memories, I think as well associated with them, but yeah, mm. good stuff. Here's to math 2024. Yay. Better get going. Well, imminent. And I suppose by the time the podcast uh, is out, it'll actually have already come out. The much anticipated follow-up, to stop motion classic chicken run dawn of the nugget will be available on netflix of course he played it at math mm. shortly after its premiere uh did it go down well it went down extremely well yeah as far as i i'm uh, uh i'm aware i was put in a kind of a weird position peter lord had come to do uh, an introduction for the film and Netflix were there and they brought the puppets with them, which is always brilliant. You know, the, everyone goes absolutely mad for the puppets. And um, they gave Peter Lord uh, the puppet of Ginger to do his introduction with. So 
basically he could just talk with holding ginger and wave it at the audience and the audience would go ooh and then you know it was very exciting and then instead of giving the puppet back once he gave the introduction peter lord went and sat down with the puppet and the person from and i was like that's fine it's his company it's his it's his puppet so as i'm concerned it's, <laughs> it's like, peter lord. exactly it's peter lord what, what 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 you know that's fine there's nothing wrong there and netflix looked at me as if to go are you going to sort that out, Steve? <clears throat> I was like, sort- get that fucking chicken off him. I was like, sort what out? And so I had to, I found myself like, as the film starting, like tiptoeing across an auditorium. So like two, 300 people could see me sort of doing that odd walk that people do when they're kind of, you know, like, kind of. Don't be suspicious. I'm Don't not, be I, suspicious. I'm not suspicious. I, I'm a busy person. You know, like a little sort of walk to Peter Lord. And the film started and, you know, you can hear the kind of, you know, the music going up. And Peter Lord sat there with with, with Ginger sat on his knee. <laughs> like, like, like you know, like, like a dad sitting there with a toddler on his knee watching watching their film together. And he was a few steps in. So I had to, like, climb over, like, five people and go, oh, Peter, Peter, can I? And he's like, oh, hello, Steve. Well, oh, right, okay. And they asked to hand over this puppet. And I just must have looked like the worst person in the world wrestling a puppet from Peter Lott. <laughs> so he could watch it. So he could watch the film. But I thought it was something quite beautiful, the idea of Ginger watching the film with with, with the man who co-founded the company. Uh, but Netflix were like, Netflix. nope. <laughs> Back in the box. <laughs> You're needed for Chicken Run Three, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah, it went down well. It went down well. Um, have you seen the film yet? No, we're uh, we're waiting for it to uh, drop, as the youth say. Uh, we're probably <laughs> going to marathon it, a one and two, Chicken Runathon. Oh wow, that's that's the way to do it. See how it uh, it sort of flows it from one to the other. I imagine probably smoothly enough. Yeah. As much as we had a little sort of like somewhat tongue in cheek little thing about the voice changes and whatnot in the last episode, hmm. but honestly, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure it's not going to break too much of the illusion. It's a weird thing what people pick up from Ardman and they'll run with it. I don't know what it is, but there's no other company in the UK where something will be mentioned or something will be done, and people will just like latch onto it, and it'll be that forever. Yeah. Like, I don't know how many people have told me this month that Arben have run out of plasticine. <laughs> I don't need to hear it. Like, I, I, that, that, that news story that broke a month ago or whatever it was, where basically Arben have run out of plasticine. They've only got enough to do the next Wallace and Gromit film. Oh my God, what are you going to do about it? And it's <laughs> like, that's, that was all the headlines. And it is complete rubbish. No. Like, what's happened is the company that, that creates the plasticine, if, you just went on their website. You could see that they're retiring and they're selling the business. So it's a fantastic advertisement for that couple who are selling their business for a, a, a lot of money. And so it's, you know, but adding Ad- Ardman to it. And so I've got people coming up to me going, oh, you've got Ardman to come to your festival. Did you know that they've run out of plasticine? Oh, actually, they've not. But they've run out of plasticine. Are they going to do anything and say anything about that? No, they're not going to say anything about it. But they've run out of plasticine. Uh, so, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah this is this is the beautiful thing about like it really kind of helps bring us kind of down to earth you know when we see like animation like on the news in some way or other what it actually is to the general public and it is just this kind of like disjointed thing 
that, you know, if you can spin something about it into a palatable news bite, mm. you know, they will. And it will probably have, you know, one toe, in fact, and uh, the rest of, you know, that's everything in the news. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're just doing their job. They're just like, okay, let's find something and completely misrepresent it. I think uh, I'll see if I can punch up an old news article headline that really kind of like, it was very sobering. Um this really uh, uh, hammers at home. Do you remember when uh, our pal Ainsley Henderson won a BAFTA? Mm. First of many. This was the headline. Fame Academy contestant <laughs> <laughs> wins BAFTA. <laughs> like, I'm sure he, I didn't see it. I'm sure he did very well, but that's the least interesting thing about him. Yeah. Except it was what put him on TV before he did animation. So yeah. that's kind of all a newspaper will at John too. And that's just sort of the cruel nature of like, imagine if he'd been on uh, married at first sight. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's mad, isn't it? Hopefully people won't be discussing the voices of chickens, the voices of animated chickens. <laughs> Maybe we'll be able to talk about the, the, the craftsmanship or the, you know, the way that the, the these wonderful people put together the sequel. But uh, yeah, how will it live up to it, Ben? I think the, the beautiful simplicity of the premise, and I, I have not yet seen the film before, but I did see the presentation uh, that Susie Fagenbar did at MAF, and that was a really interesting kind of breakdown of, of just the kind of the technical processes, but also a lot of the story processes. How do you follow up a film that is as neatly wrapped up as Chicken Run is? And it's, you know, you just go with the simple option is unwrap it. Hmm. And do it in reverse. <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, it's not like it needs to be anything more cerebral or complex than that. If it has good comedy beats and good comedy potential, you know, you have the extra element of, okay, well, they now have, you know, a child. You know, it's sort of enough to kind of mix up the dynamic a bit. Bring in some old favorites. And that's the thing is like, you know, a lot of the beloved characters. I'm pretty sure they are the same voices. Hmm. I think more people would have kicked off if they'd gotten rid of like Jane Horrocks yeah. or yeah. Um, Miranda Richardson when you're really kind of a, an institution unto yourself kind of thing. Or you just had some really good lines, like really quotable lines, you know, from the first one. I think people are going to want more of that kind of yeah. thing. But also I think that the thing, when I think of what makes contemporary Ardman feature films more sort of palatable than others is when they really kind of go to their roots as far as, okay, how do we come up with an idea of sort of, you know, whether it's a gag or a visual or a set piece or whatever, how do we do this using a sort of practical an approach as possible? Now, in inevitably, of course, there's only so much they're going to be allowed to do that in terms of budget or whatever. There were some interesting, you know, new technologies being deployed, and the, you know, the previs and the kind of uh, layout design and stuff like that. Some really interesting stuff Susie was talking about. Sort of creating 3D environments, but like using VR mm. and, you know, then sort of building on that, you know, uh, th that stuff that, of course, was not remotely available to them back in, you know, the late 90s, which I imagine would have been sort of when the production was kind of properly in, you know, full steam. But I think ultimately, like looking at it, it is still, you know, it's puppets on sets the physical acting and stuff like that. Like it's all kind of, it's not that assisted it's using actual, it's not, I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, it's not using replacements in the way that something like, say, the pirates did. Hmm. It's using more of this kind of sort of traditional kind of approach of like sculpting through with um, the performances and the facial animation. Did I get that right? Or am I- it, it, it's yeah, it's kind of like the traditionally kind of Wallace E. Gromit. Obviously, they make A E I O U and things like that to kind of have them snapping yeah. the beak snapping into place, but. There's obviously a lot of animation, a lot of a lot of kind of you know the traditional bits. I think in the original film, it was latex bodies and latex legs, um, or uh, whatever it would have been, and plasticine arms, plasticine heads, um, uh, and glass eyes and all that sort of stuff. And I think now it's plasticine hands, uh, plasticine wings as well, just to kind yeah. of save save a bit more. But they kind of they spray them with. Uh, with icing sugar or something to make it look a bit more matte as opposed to that kind of rubbery texture, which is, mm. which is quite nice. But yeah, so there's less plasticine in this one, but still that it, like you say, that traditional kind of animation technique, it's not like it's not all 3d printed kind of, so to speak. Yeah. It sounds like a good approach. I think I like something that gives, you know, that sort of textural quality, hmm. presuming they don't get ant infestations. <laughs> Because that would be a shit day at work. You'd come in and all the chickens are just riddled with ants. <laughs> yeah. Or just the runners licking them. <laughs> They're so delicious. <laughs> Stop licking the chickens again. <laughs> you creep. It's finger licking good. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's it's nice that kind of like traditional thing because they made a huge thing in the first film. Um, and not to spoil the first film for anyone who's not seen Chicken Run. Um, if you have not seen Chicken Run, um, then, then press pause and go and watch Chicken Run, and then come back. But um, the there's an explosion at the end, a gravy explosion at the end, and they had to do that in CGI. And I, I asked um, I asked Peter Lord about this and said, you know, there's a lot of technology going on in this new film. Uh, I, were you kind of like were you ever reluctant to kind of keep using more and more technology? Because I remember hearing i think it was like the audio commentary or something like that for the first film back when dvds were worth buying um it it had they had that conversation about how they were desperate to create that explosion using plasticine or using something that just wasn't cg but obviously they were tied with dreamworks and dreamworks were like yeah there's there's a way of doing it but there's there's you know Obviously, it wasn't. It was the early two thousand, so it wasn't like press a button for gravy explosion. But it, there was. It was a lot simpler than creating a, a nuclear explosion using brown plasticine, which might not have looked like gravy to be <laughs> um, to be honest. Um, but yeah, uh, now you know the background characters are CG, and there's you know there's a lot more depth and things like that. But I think it's done as you say, to kind of aid that traditional approach. It's done to to make it look, uh, to, to keep that, um, you know, in-camera, plasticine, traditional kind of crafty quality, which we all love the, the Arpen films for. And, and obviously there are loads of moments in it which are, are all pretty much in-camera. So, yeah. So how did you rate it? Did you, uh, do you feel it's a worthy successor? Um I have not seen it because Netflix haven't sent me the screener yet. <laughs> I did ask for it. <laughs> They've not sent it. And it's like, we're recording this 
like days before the film's released on Netflix, so I might as well just wait. <laughs> so, Fair enough. So, yeah. Well, stalwart squiggly contributor Ryan Gore, he did manage to catch it, I think, at the premiere. Yeah. Quite a measured review, I think. It, it You know, it's not just singing the praises. It's pretty, it, it scrutinizes it, you know, I think in a quite a fair way. But it definitely, you know, it, it feels like a worthwhile film. I think it's, you know, obviously good timing with, with the season. Mm. And I believe we have uh, the director and producer on this very episode of the podcast. Am I correct? You are correct. We do have the director and the producer recorded in June at Annecy. So at Annecy, they revealed uh, some clips from the film. And so I had a conversation based on that, basically. <laughs> that's... that's um that's that's where we that's where we were earlier on in the year. So, uh, pretty spoiler free interview, um, but also talking a lot about that kind of you know the pressure of of uh, of bringing Chicken Run back to life. Um, obviously, now we know the characters that are coming out, and we know the uh, we know uh, the the surprises that have come around the corner. Um, but at the time of recording, only basically the original cast had been announced and no one else, no other characters had been revealed. And the, uh, the interviewees were wearing crew shirts. Obviously, you know, the, the production had wrapped and the crew had been given t-shirts and they were wearing them quite proudly. Uh, but the, the, the crew shirt says something on it. Like, you know, it was, it's about Funland farms. And then it said, you know, property, uh, M. Fry, um, which was a character that hadn't been announced yet. Um, and I saw that on the T-shirt and went, oh, who's that then? And their faces were like, oh, my God. <laughs> the jig is up. <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> it's, oh <laughs> it's the closest I've ever come to being an investigative journalist, Ben. <laughs> I, was, I was very excited with myself. I was like, yeah, I've done, I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> what a scoop. What a scoop. <laughs> And then release the interview in December after the film's been released. But whatever, that's let's not let's gloss over that bit. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, yeah, here's the uh, director and producer. So Sam Fell and producer Layla Hobart. Okay, I'm Sam Fell. I'm the director of Chicken Run: Dawn of the Nugget. And I'm Layla Hobart, one of the producers. Thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. But let's take it right the way back to when Chicken Run 2 was first muted, mm. you were handed perhaps the biggest baton in <laughs> stop-motion feature history. Yes. It's the most successful stop-motion yep. animated film of all time, Chicken Run. Yep. And then, no pressure, yeah, yeah. but it's time to make a sequel. How yeah, did you yeah. feel? How did you both feel when you came on board the project? Well, it's, I mean, it's not just that there has that statistic, the, the, the box office statistic, but also, I, for me, it's a masterpiece, you know, uh, a masterpiece of filmmaking, you know, not just of stop motion, but just as filmmaking. Mm. Um, and I was there, I was much younger when they when they did the first film, and actually, and I, I remember the, the the massive effort it took to kind of gear the studio up from a, you know making half hours to making a feature. It was an enormous milestone for Artman. I've known Pete and Nick for thirty years. So, so yeah, there's a, there was all of that, you know, and plus, you know, they made it with Steven Spielberg, and you know, so, so yeah, it's a huge um, thing to take on. So it's pretty, it's very daunting. It's definitely very daunting, isn't it? And so, 
hesitated for a moment, but but um, I don't think you could. You know, sometimes when you're scared about something, you should probably do it. You know, like yeah. if something it says that there's something there that you need to tackle. That's where you. That's where you grow is by taking on stuff that's difficult, and also. I just think like like world wants those characters to, to come back, right? You know, they're, they're such lovely, brilliant characters, and there's a there's a, a lot of lot of people that grew up watching Chicken Run that want to know what happened next. Yeah. Yeah, I think they they're true. They're properly timeless characters, aren't they? Mm. And you know, I think people talk about it a lot now, and I don't. I think people say it wasn't necessarily intentional, but it was definitely ahead. The film was ahead of its time, mm. and I think Ginger as a character particularly was very much ahead of her time. So it also felt like she is a character that could and should live now, yeah, right? It yeah, just yeah. felt. Yeah. Yes, it was 23 years ago, but she still feels totally relevant as a character now. Yeah, who she is and her idealism, you know, and she, you know, like, you know, it's the great escape with chickens, right, in the first film, you know. So Steve McQueen was the, the hero in, you know, that case. Um, but now it's, you know, that, that became Ginger, you know, a female chicken yeah. uh, and, a, and a largely female ensemble cast, you know, so that's you say it's kind of ahead of its time in a way. It was passing the Bechdel test before people were talking about the Bechdel test. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's uh, so it's been great to figure out figure it out for now, and you know, bring it back to, to the world uh, in 2023. And it's been it's not been easy. It's been difficult, but uh, a lot of the themes and ideas that are in it. Uh, still apply today, you know, um, notions of freedom and community and um, the great thing about Chicken Run 1 is it's quite dark, you know, it's like the stakes are that high, you know, it's, it's death and that's that's strong, you know, that, that's a strong kind of flavour to have, you know, mm. well, that, that's universal and timeless. Yeah. So uh, the original uh, Chicken Run reportedly had around about four hours worth of ideas in uh, Peter Lord and Nick Parks and everyone else's sketchbooks. Yes. How m many of those, or how much of that, has influenced Chicken Run Two? I guess the the thing, the one thing that uh, was they felt was unresolved, or you know that they didn't do in the first film, which they had early on, was to have a kid character. So they had this little kid character called Nobby. Uh, it was a great design, and they decided as they were doing it to get to to, to not have a kid, um, and so that 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 was sort of always hanging there, and that's part of this new this new version, right? So yeah. we've, we've given Rocky and Ginger have settled down together on that island. We've given them a daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, Molly. Molly. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously. Uh, obviously, that obviously adds a new layer to the story. Yeah. There are other new characters as well. Yeah, well, you know, there's a Molly. We just showed, we revealed her yesterday in our clip. Uh, Molly, Molly. Um, well, I'll dial back, wind back a little bit, and tell you the reason for Molly, perhaps, and the story. You know, because we were saying, you know, like so, Ginger's like this action hero in a way in the first movie. And then she gets what she wants, right? And she, she escapes and she gets the green grass, she gets to this beautiful island, and she settles down with Rocky. And she's got a happy ending. So it's like all over. So we, we were trying to figure out early on with the story like what, how to kind of like energize her again, or like what would be her next challenge. 
So that's what Molly is, actually. So yeah. like, she's not. We, well, we called her. We called her an antagonist, which I think is sounds <laughs> it sounds extreme, but yeah. I do think that's kind of yeah, what she in is. Story she's, terms, yeah. In story time, she's an antagonist, um, and she is. Sam calls her a chick off the old block, but she she is there to sort of remind Ginger of who she really is and give her a good, you know, a good nudge back into action, yeah. basically. Yeah. Because to Sam's point, she's been through a lot. She just wants to kick back and have a quiet life, but it's not who she, it's not really who she is, is it? Not I think that's down. the thing. And yeah. you know, yeah. when you look at Ginger as a character, she it's not it's not who she is, and she wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Um, so she's trying to, and then here comes Molly, and Molly's done it. We've turned this island into this kind of paradise. It's like a chicken eco paradise, and they've got everything they want there. You know, and they grow these giant vegetables, and they've got a water wheel that gives them energy power, and you know, and it's it's beautiful. Um, and Molly loves it there, but inevitably, and this is the thread that this is the central part of the story, the central conflict really is that Molly kind of outgrows it. You know, like at a certain point, every kid wants to know what's over there, and that's what happens. So Molly, it, it, that's the conflict of Act One. It builds and builds, and Rocky's there too. You know, and like Rocky. He was like the lone free ranger, okay, you know, like a footloose guy. Now he's settled down, you know, and he's a new dad. Mm. So it's kind of a new role for him. So between them, they kind of, it's a family story, you know, but this conflict rises and rises to the point where Molly decides she's going to go and have a look out there. So she's an escape artist, right. just like her mum. So, so in a way, her mum's paradise turns out to be a little bit of a prison for Molly in a, in, a, in the lightest, most beautiful it's a love, way. It's a, lo it's it's a, a beautiful prison. prison. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like how you say that death was the, 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 the main threat in the first one, and now parenthood is the main threat. What's worse than death, parenthood? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bigger challenge in some ways, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, no, that's been... That's been the, the job really, is to figure out how to put that into an action movie, you know, because even before Molly and that, that story, the original pitch for Chicken Run 2 was, you know the chickens from Chicken Run? Well, this time they're breaking in. That's the, that's the, la the log line on the poster, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the, the beginning, and Pete uh, had done some drawings early on of, the chickens in kind of heist mode. So, you know, like using rub toilet plungers to climb walls and, um, you know, egg whisks to, you know, attack people. And there were great, about eight really great pictures of them in action and it instantly conjured up, you know, like Chicken Impossible. Um, and so that was the, that's the plot, if you like. You know, we, we knew that it's going to be this kind of break-in movie, like a heist kind of action type thing. Um, but the long, it's taken a long time to kind of like weave this. Weave the two together. Yeah. 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 What, can we, what do we know about, well, I know what you guys know, everything, but what, what could we know about where they're breaking into? Are they new or returning antagonists? Yeah. What's the, what's the threat beyond parenthood? Well, it has to be, we realise it had to be bigger and badder than Tweety's farm, right? So, 
In a way, I estimate Tweedstom look quaint but in comparison. And when you think about it, Tweedstom kind of is, you know, it's an organic operation, you know, she, the homemade pies, you know, they're, they're, it's a fairly small mum and pop operation. So we thought, well, let's move, let's move the time frame. So say, you know, it's late 40s, Chicken Run 1, you know, post-war Britain, sort of drab kind of, you know, Britain. So we imagine, well, let's move into the early 60s and into a new era of farming, um, like an actual, like industrial scale farming. Like a, so we've, our new farm that they're breaking into is like a gigantic factory farm in which they're making nuggets as well. So they kind of have the product in there as well. So, and it's not just any old nugget. This is like the world's first nuggets. This is the dawn of the nugget. So you, you could imagine that, that that recipe would be an incredibly highly guarded secret, you know, like the recipe for Coke or, you know, KFC. So it's a massive amount of security guarding these nuggets that are inside. Um, so we took that notion of a factory farm and that kind of security, and we've just dialed it up and exaggerated it to the point where this place is like a Bond villain's lair now. It's just, it's ginormous. And actually the, the threat, if you, you think about it, it's almost like an existential threat to chickens. You know, you imagine if those nuggets catch on, how many chickens are gonna, are gonna suffer? So it's, uh, it's almost a doomsday weapon. <coughs> If you like, so um, so yeah, that's the that's what they're breaking into now. Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, there's been many technical innovations since the first film. The first film was quite a struggle to have the characters rigging them and stopping them from falling over. Um, has that with 3D printing and changes to the way that films and uh, stop motion films are made? Has that changed the scope? Uh, of the world or what the characters can do and has that increased the possibilities for character animation or storytelling potential? Well, you are, I mean, we've, so I'm with you talking. No, no, <laughs> please stay. <laughs> um, as I just described it, this gigantic Bond villain's lair, it, it's a, just a bigger scale movie, you know, it's a bigger scale challenge. And for the studio and the production, it was a massive challenge as well because remember the first film, all the chickens were like in these huts, away from the humans. The Tweedies were generally in their kitchen or around the front of their house. And that was puppet scale A, and chickens were puppet scale B. And those two scales rarely met. Uh, and when they did, it was uh, cleverly cut and shot. So they, 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 I think they built a few big hands and a few giant legs, um, but they, they, they did a great job. But the story allowed them to contain the thing. Well now this this story doesn't hasn't done any of that, hasn't helped us at all. So even um, so we've had to create we have we've had to figure out a lot of scale challenges basically. Yeah. Yeah. So we've used our production design used Gravity Sketch early on. Okay, so it's like a three D uh, modeling uh, uh, design tool. So he was drawing and painting, and then you know he would get in and he would just sketch out like the whole space uh, and all of the buildings. And we had like chicken scale and human scale. So 
even before we were storyboarding, even when we were just at concept phase, we were able to get the headset on and like walk around inside the thing, figure out the cinematography, figure out the the um, you know the aesthetic, but also like all of the technical challenges. And that that allowed camera and art department to figure out what's how to build everything and how to combine it. So so yes, yeah, really a lot of technology, and that played through even to the studio floor where we use virtual production for some of the Act 3, when, when Act 3 gets big. Um, and so some of the environments in Act 3, we were actually sort of piping them in using virtual production. So all the high tech stuff, but it's stop motion is the, what we do, and it's what people love, and it's what, to be up frankly, it looks amazing, stop motion, so we really wanna. So anything that we made in CG, we would always build it first or build a portion of it. So, you know, it was copied, you know, you knew what it should look like. Um, and it's all made with a stop motion aesthetic. Um, and where we could, we built, we always built things and like kind of combined them as far as possible. So, so yes, yeah, you can't be a, a real, real light on a real texture shot through a piece of glass, you know, that, that look is just so hard to achieve. And I know it's quite a lot of CG productions are trying to emulate it. Grab, grab some of that now, you know, because yeah. they're, they're, they're feeling that they want that warmth. Well, and I think audiences too. feel it too. Like we want, we want to feel, we want to really like feel something tactile. It's funny because now, especially with the sort of the AI uh, news stories now, yeah. the, 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 the threat to humankind, or <laughs> you feel like, well, actually, stop motion, hundred years old, it's still yeah. got that, it's got the humanity, it's got that, yeah. and you feel like it's actually a real, um, it's a real plus now. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Still got plasticine eyebrows and all, all the type of, you know, to keep that like express expression we, alive. I, I insist that the animators leave their thumbprints in the characters, you know. Because they in the first film they obsessively cleaned them off because they were worried that the the, the clay stop motion animation wouldn't hold up on a big screen. Because they was going, going it would look to too feature, yeah, yeah, they would look too rough. <laughs> so they 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 were smoothing that plasticine. Uh, but now it's come full circle, really, and it's like, no, please put more. You know, please make sure you've got your thumbprints in there. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that leads on to uh, my next question about. Um, it's not just an excuse to use this pun, but keeping chickens grounded. Obviously, the first film. Uh, sorry. The first film, uh, working with DreamWorks and, uh, and Hollywood, and and kind of keeping keeping a very British, uh, you know, contained story and sensibility. It's not got, it's it's not it's not a Hollywood film. It's a very British film. And now this one, working with Netflix, another huge, uh, you know, biggest name in entertainment. Uh, the temptation is obviously to, you know, to go to go Hollywood. However. The charm of the film is the the quirky Britishness, or however you want to put your finger on it. Uh, you've got experience with that, working with a kind of British property, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Gnomes, and um, uh, with, with Elton John's production company. Uh, how did you? How do we find that with uh, keeping these kind of characters grounded and that British sensibility? I mean, I think Ardman is so lucky in a way because, and again, Chicken Run, it's so iconic. 
and Aardman is so good. <laughs> like, it's it makes it, it like you have these points of reference. Mm. I think that to be able to go and look, but look, like it works. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so. Yes. I yeah, think you yeah. you have this kind of basis of yeah, like there's a respect for Aardman. Yeah, and I think for such good reason. And yeah. and then I think actually just talking about working with Netflix and I know Sam would speak to this too, mm. it, it's always been incredibly <laughs> supportive yeah. of it being what it is. And they love, I think they all love the first movie as much as we do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then, but I feel like Netflix is global. Yeah. So like, it's not America, it's, it's not America. It's not America, I don't way. feel it. Yeah. I watch Netflix and I can watch stuff from all around the world, you know, and I love that, you know, a Spanish production or something from Africa even, Yeah. You know. And I think they want Netflix want Chickaman to be Chickaman, yeah, and I think they want identity. it to be yeah, British, yeah. you know. And I think so. Frizzle, Molly's friend character, I think it's a really good example of a new character. So it's like, okay, there's not one of the characters. Molly as well. Molly and Frizzle, the new characters. Mm. There was never any sense of trying to make. You know, they're very British. Yeah. Frizzle's a northern character. There was yeah. never any sense of trying to make. No, them I was surprised. More, Frizzle, yeah, because you would have had that with a pure American, with American studio. American studio. So Molly, Molly runs off, and then she, the first character she meets is a uh, a young chicken called Frizzle from Liverpool. Pretty decent Liverpool accent, you know. Like no, comp we didn't not compromise <laughs> on the accent and the the. The guys from Netflix that didn't ban on it, you know. But I know that some of the. I think we were sort of past, waiting. I was yeah, wait, I was I waiting was, for the yeah. moment when someone said, "I can't understand what she's saying," or, <laughs> or I don't know, could she be a bit? And no. you know, and as a result, yesterday was the first time I'd seen any like public reaction yeah, to her. Like, people, people, she's so her. charming yeah. because she is exactly who, who you would yeah, be, who yeah. you wanted her to be. Yeah. But the other point I think about um, Aardman and American filmmaking is that I think that's always gone on that Armin have always like co-opted American Hollywood style filmmaking and just turned on his ear and with a tongue in cheek, you know, Farmageddon's is the sci-fi, it's a big sci-fi movie, Where Rabbit, the horror movie done with, you know, a Where Rabbit instead of a werewolf. Um, you know, and even like the train chase in the long trousers, you know, that's shot like a Hollywood movie, Nick is very, very influenced by, by, by Spielberg actually, you know, in Hollywood. But his train chase was indoors with a penguin, you know. So it's, I, th I think there's a great um, partnership there, or a sort of marriage, mm. so you know, a cultural marriage. A little tussle. Yeah. <laughs> and Chicken Run, you know, is perfect because they have Rocky the American Rooster coming into this British scene, you know. So, yeah. And, then, so, and it's the same with Dawn of the Nugget, you know. We're, looking at Bond, and yeah, Bond is British, but it straddles the Atlantic, you know, Bond movies are appealing everywhere, and you know, Mission Impossible, you know, we, we love talking, you know, it's, it's fun to, you know, cheekily play with that stuff. Fantastic. Um, we've got a, a whole, well, a, a new cast for, uh, for the series as well. Does that reflect the characters the change in the characters as well in their yeah. kind of journey. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it, it's true that the, the first film was made quite a while ago, you know, it's, it's, it was it's 23 years ago since it came out. It was actually cast then, you know, three years before that. So, you know, it's over a quarter of a century since those decisions were made and based on those characters and that story. So, so it's not quite your standard sequel. You know, it's, in some ways, there's a little sense of a reboot to it in a way. You know, it's that much later, and yeah, there are new roles for the for the existing characters. 
events um, and the new characters arriving as well. So, so it's it's kind of an evolution, I think. You know, it's, it's been an evolution. We've been we've been very considerate about um, the choices, um, but I the main thing I think I really want would love people to do is just come and give it a chance and listen because they sound fantastic. Honestly, so the, the, these voices are superb. You know. So, yeah, and that, you know, we played yesterday. It played brilliantly yesterday. What can you tell us about the clips that have been screened at Annecy as part of the Netflix presentation yesterday? Well, we wanted to talk. Of, we wanted to say a lot in half an hour, you know. So we um, we um, we wanted to use the clips to set up a movie. So we we start with a little clip of Molly and uh, Ginger, and we just get a little look at and Rocky arrives. We just get a little look at that dynamic family dynamic uh, that we talked about. Um, and then we have a town hall scene where we still where we see how Ginger is still like the leader of the community and still the one that makes decisions and the one that everybody looks to 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 you know deal with the tricky stuff. Um, and then we ended with a clip where we showed what happens when Molly sneaks off the island for her first encounter with the outside world, and that's where she meets Frizzle. And we get our first glimpse of Funland Farms, which is this. Um, Rather uh, disturbing factory farm that yeah that's, that has this rather lovely name. Uh, <clears throat> ice cream for you, buddy. That was nice. Is that the noise of Funland Farm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not far off actually, because the trucks, the, the little trucks that go there, the very are, ice cream, yeah. ice cream van. Yeah, they're based style. on an ice cream van. Because you remember when you were a kid when the ice cream van came down Where the road? Like as a, yeah, that's fun. That I, was, I, I noticed the yeah, chicken yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I thought, is yeah. that merch? Yeah. yeah. Where yeah chickens, chickens find their happy, happy endings, you know. Right. <laughs> Proper, property, 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 proprietor. proprietor. M. Fry. M. Fry. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about M. Fry? <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah, that's to TV. You'll have to, you'll have to, to watch it on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> My friend watched the original Chicken Run, left and became a vegetarian. Only for a week. <laughs> what What do you want people to do when they, when they finish watching Dawn of the Nugget? I guess they can make up their own minds, you know, what they, what they think about it. I, I mean, working on the movie for this long, I stopped eating chickens. And um, and then meet all together, but that was my choice. Not that. I think it speaks to what um, and we talked about it yesterday. Uh, taking the taking the characters in the world seriously, right? Mm. Ardman makes funny, silly, you know, yeah, yeah. funny, We're silly things, but, but ultimately really, really great movies. Um, and we take those characters seriously. You've been living with those characters for years. Yeah, they I become it, it, yeah, it becomes yeah. very real. And the stakes for those characters are really high. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't eat ginger. I mean, it's sort of, the, but that's the, as in the first film, the great thing is that the stakes are that high. It's death. Yeah. You, know, you you will get turned into a bucket of nuggets if you yeah. do not get out of there, and that's compelling. You know, that's a that's really the the main reason for placing you know setting it in that place and using nuggets and you know there's a, there's an undercurrent there's there's some there's some satire in there and some comedy about fast food and you know stuff like that but um, mostly we're, we're out to entertain 
there's some ideas within that in the story threaded through that uh, you know you might want to go away and you might want to think about stuff a, a little bit afterwards but mostly we want to entertain fantastic i'm sure it will uh, from what we've seen so far there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Thank you very much for Enjoy speaking to Swiggly yeah, today. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Enjoy the rest well, of the as Sam Fell, director of Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, and producer Layla Hobart, talking with Steve there. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget is out now on Netflix. If you haven't watched it yet, check it out. Perfectly timed seasonal goodness from our good pals at Ardman Animations. Mm-hmm. What else is going on, eh, Steve? I know what you're going to say. It's my favorite subject. Yay! But let's tear the <laughs> band-aid off. <laughs> Award season started, Ben. You love awards, don't you? You bloody love them. Look at your face. Oh, I can't get enough of them. <laughs> oh, so basically, we're going to look at lists for the next 45 minutes, Ben, and you're going to love it. <laughs> oh, I love a good list. <laughs> as, as with every year, the, the award lists are out, and the big surprises are that everyone's still surprised that there's some surprises in the lists. Yeah, so, yeah, basically, it's speculation at this point, but 33 uh, Academy nominees have been released. Um, but the big one that came out today was that the Golden Globes um, have uh, have revealed the, the nominations for Best Motion Picture in the Animated category. Um, and we have uh, The Boy and the Heron, Elemental, Spider-Man, Across the Spider-Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, Suzumi, and Wish. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Ben. How excited are you for that that list of six films, Ben? I'm effervescent, as you can tell from my voice. (laughs) I mean, those are definitely six films that came out recently. You know, you you can't take that away from them. Nailed it. Generally speaking, I think um, they're all agreeable. I I haven't really had much scuttlebutt on the subject of uh, Suzumi and Wish. Mm. Well, I mean, wishes, you know, it is it is what it is. No one has seemed that bothered by it, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Uh, Suzumi, I'm actually just not that familiar with. All the others, you know, I've heard various people to varying degrees of enthusiasm talk about them. Probably least of which, interestingly, would be Elemental. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were really excited about The Boy and the Heron. And then having seen it, I think, you know, they, they found it quite uh, gratifying and, you know, it sort of ticked a lot of boxes that they were expecting, but not many new boxes, perhaps. Mm. That's been a kind of what I've been sort of taking away from that. It didn't really say anything particularly new, whether or not that was something it, it should have done. I think just by virtue of being the latest in a long line of, you know, very big, very influential, very embraced films uh, by the same person, by the same outfit, really. It's sort of, you kind of hanker, I think, a little bit for something a little new. But then, of course, whenever someone tries to do something new, then people just bitch about it. So (laughs) it's probably the right call. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, anything new is, it's woke, somehow. (laughs) (laughs) As far as I I can tell. That's just what being woke is now. It's the definition has changed 80 times since people started <laughs> using that word. Basically, if I'm not like completely 100% satisfied, f- fucking woke bullshit. <laughs> All right, mate. Chill out. <laughs> 
What did you think of Spider Woke into the across the woke averse then, Ben? What did you? They're a bit too woke for me, I have to say. A bit too woke, was it? <laughs> uh, I, I felt basically the same way about it as I did the first one. Like, I, I appreciate it was doing a bit more. Yeah. The thing is, I, I feel like, you know, it's it's a great approach to a spider-man movie Mm. and i'm just not really a spider-man fan it brings me in because of the the you know a lot of the technical innovation in it certainly the first one did but i wasn't really like i liked you know the protagonist and i agreed with you know the generally universal uh verdict that it was a great way to expand on what was sort of established in the world of spider-man which was a world i really wasn't that familiar with apart from like me and my sister used to make fun of the willem dafoe version (laughs) jesus christ that was stupid (laughs) like we still laugh about it like what a shit film that was and that's a nice thing about like a good shit film is it will kind of bring families together so that's exactly what the director was going for that's my problem with the spider-verse movies is that willem dafoe never shows up in a power rangers mask (laughs) and a onesie mario i had i I, know i i was surprised i didn't like it as much as i thought i would yeah. I thought I would be kind of way more at sort of like absolutely in its sights target demographic. In a lot of respects, like, because I obsessively played the games as a kid, it was already kind of an old franchise when I was a, a, a little kid. Like, the NES was like before my time. So I kind of came in about 10 years later yeah, yeah. with the Super Nintendo. So, like, you know, we'd play the old NES games and that would be like the old Mario games. Crazy. Like, look how pixely they are. And then, you know, I kind of fell out of love with video games as a teenager, and I sort of got back into it with, like, the DS or the new Mario Brothers games and the Mario Galaxy games. It felt like they really kind of upped their game and did a lot more world building. And this, I think, was the main kind of issue was the last time they tried to make a Mario movie, is that the world building just wasn't there yet. The lore of the Mario universe, it changed from territory to territory. The characters had different names if you played it in Japan, mm. or their relationship with one another was different. So then they give some, okay, make a script out of this. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we do that? It's like, oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> and really, the answer to that question is, wait 30 years, and if the franchise is still kicking, it's probably will have solidified you know, the character base and the universe and, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of, you know, other games that you can, you know, draw inspiration from and reference and things like that. And that's kind of what the film was. It was a big reference parade. And I don't know, maybe I'm just, I'm not, I'm not getting as much out of fan service as I get older. Hmm. Something I definitely, there's a new Mario game came out a couple of months ago. It was really fun, but like something I'm definitely feeling is that it's, it's not a franchise that ages with me yeah usually something that sticks around for decades it acknowledges that okay the people who you know were into this when they were kids are now going to be in their 30s or 40s so maybe we can age it up a bit and mario never really did that it always kind of stayed for like kids and that's fine you know it's a perfectly acceptable lane to be in but a lot of what kind of enraptured audiences about the film just didn't really hit with me you know, it's kind of in the same way that, like, the whole Barbie and Oppenheimer social phenomenon that happened in the summer, the way it kind of united people, the mass enthusiasm. And I understood it. I just wasn't in the right headspace for it. 
Mm. And that would extend to like the brilliance of the Peaches song was a bit like lost on me. Whereas like other people, it was the best thing that had happened in their lives. Like this past (laughs) year has been a bit more of a somber year for me anyway. And maybe I'm not watching films or listening to music or playing games or watching shows or whatever in the same kind of headspace. So I'm not kind of, you know, connecting with it in the same way. I'm finding myself a lot more just kind of in my thoughts and also just in terms of life stuff, like we've just had a whole ton of stuff going on where, yeah, you want to distract yourself, but you just can't. Everyone will have their sort of version of it from year to year. For us this year, it was, you know, buying a house and anyone who's been through the trauma of that can appreciate you're not quite yourself for a little while. Yeah, there's that thing, you know, I stress it's not like the same thing as something like the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse, where I would see people respond to it and I would actually get annoyed and irritated by the way people kind of lapped it up. <laughs> Whereas that's not the case with, you know, a Mar- the Mario movie or the Spider-Man movie. Like they're, they're actually good products. I get why people liked them. I'm just not quite in that headspace. Mm. I, yeah, I just wanted to sort of stress, I'm not kind of like shitting on those films. Except the boy, the mole, uh, the fox, the horse. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think enough time has passed. We don't need to be diplomatic about that anymore. <laughs> Jesus Christ, we went easy on it. <laughs> I, I'm really just, we'll, you know, we'll go on to like Christmas specials in a bit, but I am disappointed that they're not doing a follow up Boy the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. <laughs> Given that when they did the Christmas special last year, they published a second book that was an adaptation of the animated adaptation <laughs> of the original picture book. <laughs> So why the hell not make an animated adaptation of the picture book adaptation of the animated adaptation of the original picture book? They could do that shit for years, just (laughs) alternate. And they didn't. Yeah, I suppose one Oscar's enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Rested on their laurels. Exactly, exactly. Did you know that I can fly... You're telling us now we've been in the snow for fucking hours. <laughs> Useless. Why don't you fly into a Tesco ready meal factory, you lazy fucking horse? There's a feather in my lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. Those were musings I had sort of like had in the chamber because I knew we were going to talk about like potential Oscar contenders. Yeah. But yeah, as I guess it's not for a Golden Globe. I don't really know what its sort of chances would be. I feel like it's probably going to go to Wisher Elemental. You, you've not, you know? you've not got any any hope on the boy. Oh, hope <laughs> you don't you don't care enough to hope. <laughs> um, sorry, that was really rude. <laughs> ben Mitchell, he doesn't care enough to hope. <laughs> You're not going to stick any money on the boy in the heron or um, a Spider Man. I mean, that would for how beloved certainly Spider Verse has been. You know, that's, I guess, not so much of an outlier. And I, you know, there's always... I would be a little bit annoyed if they just went with... I mean, I, I don't think it would go to Wish. No. I just feel like there just isn't any real interest in that. Like, you know, legitimate interest in that. Elemental was fine, by all accounts. Like, it was, you know, it was a bit more evolved than I think a lot of people's kind of initial takeaway of it was before they would actually go and see the film. I quite liked in the interview we had with them that Ryan did, that he kind of made a point of bringing that up, like that there's a kind of public 
knee-jerk reaction, I think, to like each Pixar premise as it comes up, mm. as, as being just kind of a little bit of a variant on, you know, that tried and tested formula. And they kind of got a little bit like, not with him, but with the, the concept of that, they got a little bit terse. <laughs> you can sort of hear it in their, their response. And I was, I appreciated that. Because I'm sure they tried very hard not to make it like... Water has feelings. Yeah. <laughs> they probably didn't have, you know, a great deal of rain over like, okay, just how much can you veer away from a certain formula? Because they, these films do need to make a profit, you know, or certainly yeah. that's the hope. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of interest in taking major risks, but I'm glad that there is interest in at least kind of, you know, expanding the sort of cultural points of reference. Mm. even though it's inevitably going to be filtered down a little bit and made, you know, a little bit more palatable for a general audience. We don't want to scare too many gammons away. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it, it certainly, I don't know if it was sort of one for the ages. Time will tell. Mm. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. I, 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 mm. well, I wouldn't say I appreciated it, but that sounds so condescending, but it's like, I, I was appreciative of a Pixar film, which, yes, it did go along those lines that Ryan alluded to, that kind of uh, traditional Pixar, what if X had feelings? Uh, because there's no escaping that. Um, but I, it was it was missing the spark or the sparkle, really, that uh, Turning Red had. You know, Turning Red was was a fantastic, uh, a fantastic film. And full of that kind of energy and liveliness and originality um, that you come to expect from Pixar films. And it's not the what if X had feelings that makes a Pixar film original. God, no. It's the it's the added element. And I think that Elemental had that as well. There were there were a lot of a lot of it relied on that kind of, you know, water and fire mixing kind of relationship and whilst that could have been viewed as a what if x has has feelings gimmick it it played very well on that kind of immigrant story and people from different cultures getting together and it really kind of it made more of a thing of that than it did of the the kind of gimmicky side that it that it could really have, have relied upon um so it it was a it was a great film but ultimately it it kind of um it, that was it. It was a good film. It was like, oh, great. It wasn't kind of like mind-blowing in a way that, you know, uh, past Pixar films have been. Um, but it was it was definitely up there. It certainly washed the taste of light year out of your mouth. Well, that's something. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, and Wish is, a, Wish is another story, really, isn't it? It's kind of... Um, people are are almost perplexed to see it on the list as if to say, why is it on the list? Cause I think the, the golden globes are, um, uh, uh, is, is, is it the Hollywood foreign press that, that put together the golden Globes? So it's, it's, it's the press that select the films. So why, why have they selected a film, which has been absolutely panned by critics and by audiences? You know, which is the question. I mean, I, I I saw the film. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was as bad as everyone's made out. I don't think it was as as terrible 
uh, I wouldn't use the word terrible to describe it, although I've said the word terrible three times now. Um, it, it's, it was a perfectly serviceable Disney movie with villains and, and, you know, antagonists and protagonists and magic and dance numbers and things like that. I thought it was great. Um, I, uh, I did see it under different circumstances to most people. I was very lucky. I was invited to the, the UK premiere um, in Leicester Square, which was a, an experience. I've never really had that. We've, we've obviously been to premieres before. We see them at Annecy and other festivals around the world. And 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 with those, you, you're seeing them with that kind of that appreciative audience, that animation audience. And you are seeing it with an appreciative audience at a Leicester Square premiere, but it's different. It's it's very it's it's wildly different because first of all you're in Leicester Square, which have you seen the bit in Lord of the Rings where the orcs are being born? <laughs> yeah. It's it's a bit, little bit like that. It's, bit, it's it's like a cross between that and like you know the Hollywood glamour of flashing light bulbs and you know sparkly dresses and bow ties and things like that. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's a bit of an odd odd uh, odd place to to have the the premiere, but um, yeah, it was nice. I I, um, I took my niece and nephew, who were the perfect ages for this film. Um, we went and we walked down the red carpet and we we did all that. Like, in fact, it wasn't a red carpet; it was a blue carpet because my niece made sure that she pointed that out to me when I said we're going to take you to a red carpet premiere. And then when it was a blue carpet, she was like. Uncle Steve, you said it was going to be a red carpet. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm like, I'll, t- I'll, I'll have a word. Don't worry about it. I'll, you know. Good old Uncle Steve, sort it out. <laughs> and then, um, obviously, the most adorable thing happened is they went into the cinema and, um, you know, it was very nice and, and everything, but there was free popcorn in the seats when you were waiting. And they looked at it and they went, oh, free popcorn. I remember thinking, like, you're eight and ten. Everything's free. When was the last time you paid for food? Like, <laughs> every food is free. Why Why is this a big deal? Um, well, I suppose it's the little things um, for them. But uh, the film itself, I think... Um, it's 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 okay, you know. It's it's. I think I think I'm I'm where you were with Mario. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't it doesn't blow my mind. I'm maybe not the audience for it, but uh, I thought the um, the lead was great in it. I thought she was great. Uh, Ariana Debose. Um, she could play comedy. She could play drama. She could do everything in the film, um, and and she really led it. And uh, you know, one of the one of the best kind of um, leads in a in a film of that sort I've seen in a long time. The songs were reasonable enough. I didn't. I, people have said they were uh, forgettable, but I, you know, some of them stuck in my head. I thought they were pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, what's not to like? Does it belong on a list like this? Maybe not. I don't think it does. I think there's been miles better films this year, and I think, you know. You and I have seen some absolute corkers in festivals this year, haven't we, Ben? I mean, what what's been your favourites throughout the year that's not made this um, list by the uh, the Globes? Well, I was thinking about like the films that are kind of Oscar eligible because that's going to be the next thing, right? In terms of announcements, yeah. But don't get too excited about it. Oh yeah, well, try and keep up. <laughs> I don't know. My my thing is always kind of I I 
not so much root for the underdog. I do like the idea of people being annoyed and upset by like <laughs> a film that they don't understand kind of smashing its way through. Doesn't really happen. <laughs> But, you know, when I kind of like my sort of fantasy list would be films that are, are really not part of that world at all, but would take a punt on it. Thinking of my love affair with marriage, which, um, mm. you know, all power to them, like Signe and Sturgis, they're taking a run at it. And I guess because it's uh, the theatrical release that they had was only a couple of months ago. So I guess that kind of makes it eligible for this year. Even though, like, the film itself came out, you know, it did the festival rounds, you know, a couple of years ago. You know, I don't really think it's it's necessarily, you know, a shoo-in for a nomination. Hmm. But it would cheer my, my bitter little heart. <laughs> There's just so many other factors that just sort of make it not even an underdog, you know. But, yeah, no, it would be great if something like that came through and pissed off a big studio. And I think it's clear to squiggly listeners, it's a film I've been probably the most interested in out of the bunch. Like I've already dedicated two podcasts to it. <laughs> I think it says some very important things about relationships and social conditioning that more people would benefit from hearing. Um, I think that Signe achieves things in her stories in a way a lot of other filmmakers kind of miss the mark on. Uh, you know, people use mental illness a lot or misogyny a lot or violence against women a lot as props to kind of tell stories, usually from a very male perspective. And maybe it can be something quite haunting or effective or sad for the duration of, you know, watching the film. But then the film ends, the credits roll, and you just kind of get on with your day. Yeah. And her films tend to linger a bit more. So that's why I, I, I always kind of root for her and filmmakers like her. It's sort of, you know, occasionally a live action film, with really auteur independent sensibilities will will nose its way in. I, I don't think those doors have been opened as wide for animated features just yet. No. In a similar vein, you know, with sort of underdog indie vein, I'd love for Unicorn Wars to really like <laughs> mess with people's heads. Um just to like see what the American like <laughs> film press make of it or know what to do with it whether they'd embrace it or whether it would just baffle them. And I have to say, I, uh, the caveat, I've only actually seen half of it oh. in Spanish without subtitles. <laughs> right. Even then, I like it far better than anything else that's come out of any of the big studios this year. So, <laughs> No, that, that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, it raised a lot of eyebrows when, I, when, it, when it was screened at math last year. Um, it was, yeah. I, I, you know... Um, and and uh, obviously it did very well at, at Annecy and things like that. But it's really nice to see it. It's really nice to see it on that list. But I think what's sad about lists like this is it's on the same list as Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie, or Miraculous Ladybug and Cat Noir, the movie. And it makes you makes you go like, why, <laughs> why? <laughs> is there not another well, list? Art is art. Well, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but yeah, why why not why not stick those on a different list? Because just because a feature was made doesn't necessarily mean it deserves to be on the list. I think it's down to sort of tenacity of the um the people behind it and just how much lobbying they want to do. <sighs> yeah. And 
I mean, I feel like if I made a Paw Patrol movie, <laughs> wanting to submit it to the Oscars wouldn't really be on my priorities list. I don't think it would even fucking occur to me. <laughs> but it occurred to someone over there. So, you know, good luck. Who is to say, you know, what the real qualifiers are? Certainly it mystifies me. Mm. Like, it always has struck me as completely arbitrary. Not even tick box exercises, but just random. Some Oscars winners feel like they were just picked out of a hat. Yeah. So I don't even try and kind of speculate anymore. But yeah, as far as like, you know, just sort of films that I I have enjoyed. And that's the thing. I think there haven't been that many this year. And again, not just for animation, but for live action. And maybe going back to what I was saying before, maybe it's just sort of where I've been at, you know, in my head. But, you know, I like the idea of a win for Dawn of the Nugget in that obligatory rooting for the home team sense. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people I know worked on it. Um, at this point, it feels like I'm the only person who lives in Bristol that didn't work on it, actually. <laughs> I think my pharmacist worked on it. <laughs> yeah, after a while, you do start to take it personally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I haven't actually applied for a job at Ardman in 11 years. Right. So that might have a part to play. But, you know, it's the principle of the thing. I think, you know, my mad skills, <laughs> skills with a Z that they aren't so legendary that Ardman just had me on a six-figure retainer <laughs> as a, know, a rig removal consultant or some such is just rude. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that would be that would be a sweet thing to happen. Hmm. And maybe it will. I mean, Ardman's certainly a no stranger to an Oscar win. No. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. No, not at all. Not at all. And I mentioned Mario and Spider-Verse sort of, you know, I'd... Uh, I wouldn't be you know, uh, offended if either of those won. And I've seen Nimona up there as well. You know, that's that's one that's been overlooked, I think, by the um, by the Golden Globes. If uh, you know, if we're going to entertain such a notion, I can't see anything else on there on this uh, thirty-three list from the the Academy that um, that that should be on the um, Golden Globes. Apart from that, really. Well, apart from the indies, obviously, I'd love to see Unicorn Wars. I'd love to see um, Love Affair with Marriage. I'd love to see The Peasants. I'd love to see, you know, anything that literally that wasn't met, was made outside of of a Hollywood postcode. I'd love to see <laughs> on, uh, on, on that list. However, you know, um, if you are going to entertain this with, with uh, you know, big studio, you know, Hollywood studio films, then why isn't Nimona up there? That's my damn question. Certainly over Wish. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, give it, give it, give it a shot, you know. Yeah. But yeah, and, and you, you kind of, you kind of wonder every year, obviously, my, if I'm, if I'm picking films for this year, I'd obviously pick um, uh, Chicken for Linda or Mars Express. I really enjoyed um, Kensuke's Kingdom as well this year. I thought that was a really good mm -hmm. one. The Inventor was full of fun. The Inventor's on this list, on this 33 uh, list, but unfortunately I don't think it's going to go anywhere near, um, you know, just just the nature of the awards is is, is not going to celebrate that type of, uh, uh, you know, film. So I, th I think the ones that I like, you know, uh, Mars Express and, and Chicken for Linda and stuff might be on next year's list. Uh, as well as Kensuke's Kingdom. Mm. But yeah, they'll be overtaken by whatever's released by Disney two weeks before the list comes out or yeah. or, or, or others, you know. But they, yeah. 
yeah there you go there's the there's the list what about shorts then ben do you have favorite shorts this year yeah i mean a few not necessarily within the last year but i I did notice like if few that you know felt like they were older films seem to be eligible so that's mm. a good sign there's some really nice stuff my my top pick i'll save till last mm. one that i was really happy to see on there and i, I screened this at math last year on the squiggly screening uh dog apartment by pretender mm. and i came across that working with the frederick start animation festival last year and it really Everything about it really sort of harkened back to all that I loved about stop motion shorts, you know, growing up and studying animation, you know, not cutesy, but really captivating. Yeah. And it got a lot of tongues wagging after the screening. And I think it rewards repeat viewing a bit as well, uh, which is a very important factor to me when it comes to shorts. I think if someone was like half paying attention to it or watching it while, you know, fucking around on their phone, you know, they would miss that it's actually quite linear and otherwise they'd assume it's just sort of an assortment of like random surreal vignettes kind of stitched together. But it all actually kind of connects in a way that's sort of cyclical and there's a kind of internal logic to the universe of it. It's a dream logic, but it's, you know, it has its own kind of thought out rules and the cause and effect and stuff like that. I think it makes it very watchable, but I also just really love the puppets and the production design. I love the fucking weird house he lives in, the weird barking house. I like that Eastern European edge it has. Uh, I feel like, you know, that probably might alienate certain people that we know. We definitely know that uh, the people who make these decisions have a history of being a little bit narrow-minded when it comes to animation as a category. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, they could be put off by stuff that I find to be real strengths of a film. Another one I really quite liked from the sort of recent kind of festival run is Backflip by Nikita Dierka. And that one I saw at Encounters last year, or possibly the year before. No, I think it would have to be last year. I didn't program it, but I was still involved in the festival program. At that point, I was doing uh, write-ups for the catalogue. Hmm. before we sort of completely parted ways. little call back to the last episode, which are our <laughs> Encounters rant episode. I uh, got some interesting correspondence out of that. Oh, really? But at the time, I did a little write-up of um, Backflip for the catalogue, which uh, I can read out, if you like. It'll eat up a minute or two. Yeah, go for it. Why not, eh? Yeah, this is what I had to say about it at the time. Backflip is the latest offering from Nikita Dierka, whose previous work includes the Encounter's 2017 Grand Prize winner, Ugly, that similarly eschewed the generic conventions of CG storytelling in favour of a uniquely clunky spectacle of wire mesh's garish colour theory and frenetic character work. In a stylistic sense, this new film follows in these footsteps, albeit paired with a simpler meta-premise in which Dierke represents himself through a rudimentary character model that has been infused with automated machine learning prompts in the hope of perfecting a backflip in a series of virtual settings. What ensues is a charmingly lo-fi parade of digital pratfalls as the director's avatar wrestles with its own physicality and that of its surroundings. It's a protracted journey, repetitive though not tedious, of floundering and thrashing about that alternates between humorous, endearingly pathetic, and unexpectedly poignant, though ostensibly a film examining the technical processes at play 
and the potential ramifications of AI in general, a curious humanity begins to emerge, in some respects analogous to the creative process, or indeed life as a whole. We come to root for the character's success and warm to his indefatigable spirit in eventually achieving his goal, regardless of how arbitrary it might seem. The word count for these write-ups was like 200 words per film, and that was a very easy film to write up because there was a lot of meat to it. Mm. There were a lot of films <laughs> where I like to think of 20 words <laughs> was, a, was a struggle, I got to say. Not naming any names, but uh, yeah, no. His film is, you know, it's a it's a good chunky one, and it's it's as I just sort of suggested there. There's a lot kind of going on in it that makes it kind of weirdly funny, and and also kind of you know, uh, sort of empathetic to this creation, you know. And it's a little, it's it's not quite as inaccessible as some of the others I had in mind, but it's it's pretty out of the norm. I like that it's kind of embracing things that we don't really fully have a handle on yet. I mean, already the AI conversation has, has, you know, it's gone on so many more steps since he made the film. Yeah. So, you know, that'll probably date it in a sense, but I think that it'll probably date it in a way that would be kind of charming. Nice. We'll see. For variety's sake, there's a few on my list. I'll I'll uh, I'll save my... Was that your top? Was that your number one? No. Um, no. That's just the first two on this uh, yeah. thing I, I jotted down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. There's a few, there's a few kind of like honorable mentions one of the films that was screened at the um uh, at the squiggly screening the uh, final nail in the coffin was something that really um really kind of struck with me that now i i taught the director uh, i didn't teach him a thing about making films i want to put that out there now that kid you know, came on the course already knowing what to do. There's no, there's no, so in spite of your role in his studies, he, he, he turned out all right. Exactly. All I did was try and knock him down a peg or two. What a relief. <laughs> Imagine how amazing it'd be if he didn't encounter me. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Connor, uh, uh, Kaheli, uh, he's really found his stride with this film and it is, it's the start of something amazing. And I think everyone needs to keep their eye on Connor because I'm really excited to see where he goes next, really, and what he does next. And I hope he, I hope it is within the short film, uh, realm as well. One of the films that came out of nowhere, and I hadn't seen this in Annecy or Anima or any of the other festivals I've been at, and it was submitted to MAF and, and um, it won the best British film, was uh, Old Gucci Mabrowski. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's it's kind of like a... Uh, it's a train of thought. The animation isn't superb. It's kind of blotchy. Um, it's just enough for you to understand what's going on. It's not really a lesson in perspective or anything or, or, or design or anything like that. Maybe it is in design, but not in, um, not in realism. But, um, it is a tremendous kind of exploration of so what it is to be a 20 year old, 20 or 20 something. If we can cast our minds back that far, Ben, um, you know, being a, a, a young man, a kind of single and, you know, living in a city and just enjoying life and uh, or trying to enjoy life with all these random thoughts uh, uh, kind of wrestling in your mind. Um, and it's it's all about that. And it's every little insecurity that you've ever had that's kind of uh, 
and every question that you've asked yourself um i watched it and i was like oh god this is this is very you know this has taken me back to you know when i was a certain age um and i think that's something that's something quite uh exciting criticism of the film that i heard was oh it's oh woe is me i'm a bloke and i kind of get that i i, I kind of get that to a certain extent but there's not no one else is really making films like that and it isn't really a kind of it's not exclusionary towards anyone else it's just about it just so happens to be about a bloke so yeah it's yeah i i i i had a lot of fun with it i've i found it thoroughly enjoyable so that's you know uh another another kind of um honorable mention for my uh uh films of uh 2023 i think um but yeah there's there's you know there's there's a there's a bunch here i'll, I'll let you have a crack of the whip now go on give us another couple of of a ben's list well, I, I think I misunderstood the assignment. Ah, so uh, I was I was going from the list of films that are actually eligible for Oscar nomination. Oh, right. Where's that list? There's a few <laughs> like press outlets that have it. Those two that you just mentioned, I mean, those were definitely, you know, of the films that came out this year, they were very high on the leaderboard. I'm interested in the sort of criticism of all oh, Gucci, my broski, because it's that element of it, I think, is sort of its strength and kind of the whole point of the film. Exactly. Like it's, it's, it's a POV or sort of, you know, internal sort of thing of like to be a young man now, I think must be very hard because when we were young men and I, it wasn't that different. It wasn't like a million years ago, but it was, you know, 15 years ago, I'd say. Mm. And the world did change quite a lot in terms of, of being honest about what was okay and what wasn't. And, you know, the way you behave being, you know, perceived a certain way. And I definitely look back at, you know, how I was in my 20s and I have some anxieties about like, oh, I hope I, I didn't upset that person because I was doing something that I thought was what was expected of me or that I thought would be funny, you know. And usually if, it's, if it never sort of comes up with people, it's not something they really minded or even noticed. But it's something I think, you know, people do scrutinize. You know, and the same way I think something like Peep Show was so popular. Well, no, it was never that popular, but the reason why it found its sort of like very kind of like devoted fan base was that it, it did that same thing. It really spoke to your internal, weirdly specific insecurities and banalities. That was sort of the genius of it as well, just the banal stuff that weighs on your mind. <laughs> But this film, I think, is a bit more kind of sensitive, and it doesn't, it isn't really sort of played for laughs, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's quite honest, and I, you know, it's not this person's fault that he's a man, you know, mm. but I think a big part of, you know, if you're going to be sort of a sensitive person, and you're going to try and tailor your behavior and grow as a person, you do have to scrutinize things, and you have to be sensitive about certain behaviors, and you will make mistakes along the way. We are all human. So I didn't maybe, maybe because I'm a bloke, I didn't really kind of, I'm a bloke, maybe because I'm a man, I didn't really like pick up on stuff that that particular, you know, person criticizing it did. Maybe it was all stuff they'd heard before and they felt it was just repackaging things that didn't need to be said. But for me, I felt it was actually quite thoughtful. Hmm. And I, I thought the style of it was really nicely done. It was a good, good use of that approach. 
Similarly, I would say the final nail in the coffin, that was also one that, that I ranked very highly. I think of this year's squiggly screening, that was the one that people seemed to really kind of get the most out of. It certainly got the biggest reaction, you know, and I, I you know, put it on at the end and people really got a kick out of it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly my kind of, you know, wheelhouse. There's a certain like absurdism that I really, you know, gravitate toward. It felt like familiar and comfortable. Even though some quite horrible things happen in it. <laughs> yeah, it just it's exactly the kind of thing I, I, I really, you know, enjoy from animation. Or because a part of me knows that there are some people that are gonna be a bit freaked out by it. Yeah. Or some people that will watch it and go, What? Mm. I know it's picked up some awards recently, so it may end up, you know, getting a journey that will lead it to Oscar's eligibility next year. Uh that would be awesome. That'd be great. But yeah, otherwise that would have definitely um uh, been on my list too. Um, so yeah, my list goes back, I think, a little bit further, sort of beyond 2023 yeah. into um, 2022 a bit. Uh, two more I had on this list: uh, "Letter to a Pig" yeah. uh, by Tal Cantor. You know, I was thinking quite a bit about, like, when I was thinking about the feature films for the Oscars, and thinking about like if something like "The Peasants" went through, would that be contentious? Because I remember like loving Vincent's, you know, for all of the differences in approach the inconvenient truth is that you know these films will be tied together as the painted roto films yeah you're not going to be able to avoid that it's like with um richard linklater's films you know it's it's you can say oh we did it completely differently this time because we did this and x and y and z it's like okay you rotoed it a bit differently yeah. <laughs> is basically what you're saying so whether or not, I mean, those are discussions that I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see either happen or not. But I do remember that Loving Vincent, like, there was a bit of, you know, um, some people weren't too thrilled about that film when it came out. I, I wasn't that bothered either way, to be honest. But on that subject, Letter to a Pig, it, it, you know, it has Roto in it. Roto is a big part of it. It really helps when there's a functional role the approach plays. If you're doing Roto, if it kind of complements the story, and I think that Tao Counter does it very effectively with uh, Letter to a Pig, you have these kind of smatterings of detail. You can tell that it's, you know, live action footage kind of at its sort of base, because some of it is you know, like live action actually kind of poking through, you know, surrounded by, yeah, these, these little like, you know, bits of detail. Some of them are realistic and some of them are quite abstract and stylized. But all against this kind of open white blankness, especially sort of within the classroom scenes. And it feels like something like half remembered or half forgotten. Mm. And I think that that's kind of, I feel like that was sort of what she was going for with it was there was a kind of like in the second part of the film, especially when it kind of becomes more of a fantasy of the, the schoolgirl when how this person's story of being a holocaust survivor has kind of affected her and it's a little kind of mini odyssey she goes on yeah there's just absolutely sort of like every shot is completely perfect and mm. does such a good job of being what it is and even though it's only like 10 15 minutes long you know it's as completely realized a story as you can sort of hope to get and not just a story but just an overall production as you can hope to get from a relatively auteur um, animation. so Not a second wasted. Yeah, it swells around in my head quite a bit. Another one I quite liked, and it was just sort of good to see him back, was uh, Scale by Joseph Pierce. 
And that was one I okay. I would have screened at the the math screening, but I think you actually had screened it in the competition the year before. Mm. Of the kind of like list of like contenders, it's definitely one of the standouts. Yeah, if I was just sort of picking like sort of like favorite films of of you know recent times, maybe there would be others sort of a little higher on the list. I mean, some of the films on here, like films that are probably way more likely to kind of like get nominated, like Once Upon a Studio. <sighs> Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. hey, you know, fair play. It's it's dense. I'll give them that. <laughs> they really <laughs> rammed every Disney character in there as tightly as they could. <laughs> and I guess if you absolutely love Disney, like that's probably quite an effective little film. Problem is, I quite like Disney films. Like their batting average for me is like maybe one in five. <laughs> as far as films that are kind of in nostalgic rotation. So if you just kind of like something, a sort of syrupy, sentimental celebration of everything that makes it magical, it's obviously not going to be for you, you know? And so, yeah, I, I didn't really, I wasn't spinning cartwheels with that film. No. Somebody described it as an advert for Disneyland Paris. And I can't see I can't see anything else. It's if if it had a voiceover <laughs> of people telling me that you know tickets were now half price and kids go free or something like that. No, <laughs> with all the characters leaping out and and all heading in a direction. Um, I'd yeah, there's I, I I can't not see it. It's you know. So I heard somebody else call it a Walmart commercial. You know, it's it's. It's definitely advert for Disney. Mm. It's abs, you know, unequivocally that, with some kind of emotional moments, obviously. Um, but if you are, if there's an ounce of cynicism in you, if there's an ounce of kind of anti-corporate kind of, you know, in you, when you see Mickey Mouse looking up at that portrait of Walt Disney, um, while the cast of of Raya and the Last Dragon are juggling behind him. You really don't care, but what's the likelihood of it getting Oscar nominated? Well, just because it's not on our list, <laughs> I'll give this to him. It's every bit as emotionally moving as Boy Mole Fox Horse. <laughs> so you, you might have given away your real thoughts on that earlier on, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so again, on the sort of eligible list, like Harvey, yeah, was nice. I spoke with them. Um, Janice Nadeau on the One to Ones podcast about it a few months back. And I like her work a lot. I think it was a sweet, you know, well done adaptation. I wouldn't necessarily say it sort of scrapes the top five, but, you know, of the sort of list of eligible shorts, it does kind of peek out. But my top film, and if I could donate a limb to make <laughs> this happen, I would contemplate it. Uh, the film I would like to take home the Oscar is Drift. By Levi Stoops. Nice. Okay. I think it has everything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it has love. <laughs> it has uh, a shark. <laughs> it has a log. It's better than bad. It's good. <laughs> I have a soft spot for films where uh, oddball characters are sort of floating adrift in like a <laughs> void with nothing but a paddle. Not sure why. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see it. I see it. Yeah, yeah. That's a really, really well put together film. But it is that kind of. It's funny, but it also kind of demonstrates relationships perfectly. And and just the 
the nature of of you know the the leader of the relationship and the you know what oh, I don't, oh, there's so much there's so much to it and and it can look on the surface to be a wacky cartoon comedy or whatever you want to say but there is a lot more to that film than than its surface and I really I really dig it I'm with you it's nice it's nice it's not my number one but it's definitely on the list to be honest I'm I'm happy with the surface level of it you know yeah yeah <laughs> like I appreciate the subtext but I think it functions perfectly adequately just at face value yeah yeah you know, it's it's like all the stuff I was saying before about what I love about you know shorts it has all of that and more yeah the uh, the premise is it's a couple who are out looking for dolphins paddling on a log and uh, they can't find any dolphins and so they don't know the way home and um yeah i don't want to say any more really if people haven't seen it yet yeah but it's a delight and it uh, cheered me no end i mean others others i'd stick on the list um i like garden of hearts um i thought that was a good that was a good film uh the the uh, i think it's like hungarian um film about a a, a chap who's waiting to uh, for his interview for um, for art school, and it is very painted and very kind of uh, kind of an odd, purposefully immature style, um, but mastered uh, beautifully. Um, and another another film that kind of explores that kind of human mind in a way that all Gucci Mabrowski does. That kind of um, uh, although the the voices in the head are. Uh, completely different characters, which which is great. Um, yeah, my number one though, um, and this is another one that that, that came fr- from last year, um, and one that I I don't know if it is eligible. Hopefully, it's eligible. Um, but uh, it's got to be. Uh, you mentioned him earlier on Ainsley Henderson uh, Shackle. Yeah, I you know when I sent a message to you saying, "Oh, should we do? Should we do like a you know." a rundown of our favourite films of the year. It's the end of the year and all that sort of stuff. I kind of challenged myself to kind of sit down and not look at lists or think about math or any of that sort of stuff or, you know, selections or juries I've been on this year, but just think of which film kind of like pushes all the others out of the way and which film kind of made me go, oh, wow. Um, and it was it was Shackle. And it's I'm not going to describe what happens in it because I'm sure there's people that haven't seen the film yet and I want them to have the same experience with me or at least have a chance of having the same experience as me. But the f- opening moments of Shackle kind of beautifully demonstrate the entire film and they achieve something in those opening seconds which I wouldn't have thought possible. This beautiful kind of um, combination of 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 nature and animation just coming together to work perfectly. And it only lasts a couple of seconds, but knowing how it was animated, uh, just imagining the amount of colds and sunburn and things like that <laughs> the animator would have gone through in order to achieve those opening seconds alone. And that's before you get into the film and the beautiful characters and the the beautiful story and and everything else around it. Um, it's a masterpiece. I can't I can't praise it high enough. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I would say almost like conspicuously unseen. Yeah, like it's 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 
played at festivals, but in a very low key way, it seems. And I wonder if that's a strategy or, uh, I don't know. I just felt like it should have really kind of taken the world by storm. Yeah. And it, it sort of didn't like it's cause I was, you know, I, I had been not involved, but as an observer, you know, Laura Beth was involved. It was sort of related to her PhD studies. And, um, so, you know, in a kind of secondhand way, I was kind of, you know, on board with just how insanely laborious the production was mm. to great effect. Like it's, you know, it's, it's certainly as, as far as labors of love go. And I'm sure it was labor of hate some days, <laughs> some wintry nights. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely like it's, it's, I think unmatched in stop motion production just by in terms of the the scope of it you know yeah the uh, the ambition of it i can't think of another production that's that's actually done that and you know like i say if you get to see the film all will be revealed but it's it's you know what you think you're seeing is exactly what you're seeing yeah that's an endurance exercise you know that's a yeah. you know it's an enormous demand of a person's time and um you're beholden to a schedule that isn't really your own and schedules are so important in stop motion production. So yeah, it's quite incredible. Because all, all animation is an achievement. All, you know, if you're hunched over a light box, if you're spend hours, um, you know, building models or if you're building sets or, you know, you can make them big, you can make them small, you can make them ambitious, you can make them long, you can make them short. All animation is an achievement. Let's not, you know, dumb it down. But this is a cut above. This is this is defying the elements. This is really pushing animation, uh, or or what 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 is thought of animation. It's it like it's exactly what you said, Ben. It's an endurance exercise, um, and and all that kind of the labour comes across on screen as well. And I think um, it come he, he's he's turned that labour into art. And um, yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And yeah, you know, like with a couple of the other films, you know, that that one would have been on my list as well, but for it not being on this sort of like eligible for the Oscars list here. And I don't know if it would be eligible for future editions. I would love for it to be. Yeah, hopefully. Because if Ainsley Henderson won an Oscar, it would be just fantastic to like pick up a newspaper and read Fame Academy <laughs> <laughs> wins Oscar. <laughs> Oh, go back. You did it. <laughs> right, can we go home now? We've done it. <laughs> if nothing else, I doubt that'll bear much correlation with what actually happens with the Oscar nominations, but we've recommended some films to you, and that's something we like to do on this podcast. So if you've yeah. not seen them, keep your eyes open for them. Absolutely. It's nearly time to uh, wind down and go to bed. Before then... I believe we have another interview in the chamber. We've got ourselves a Christmas special hitting our screens pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So our friends at Lupus Films are back with a brand new film. We've got Mog based on the uh, the, the Judith Kerr books. Um, I don't know if you ever read these books when you were a young'un, Ben. Um, it wasn't it wasn't on my kind of um, book list as a kid. Um, we had, you know, the snowman, we had all that type of stuff, but we didn't have Mog. Um, we weren't a cat family, but <laughs> I don't know if you were. Uh, no, it didn't, um, wasn't really on my radar. So this is, this is the, just the, a 
beautiful kind of you know quaint adventures of um a kind of you know southern england family and and their cat um uh judith kerr she's the the she was the author of uh, the tiger who came to tea um and uh, obviously Looper's films adapted that a few years ago as well to a, a, a something of a showstopper of an animated short as well i should say uh really um you know really good chris good stuff christmasy uh stuff um and obviously that kind of style has come back from mog um and really kind of they've really pushed the boat out as well i might i might say i i went again this is back in the year so like the chicken run interview this is back in i think it was july or something like that um, so the sun was absolutely baking outside and we're, we're sat in a room watching, uh, Christmas films with snow and tinsel and things like that. Um, but the film was that good. It kind of transported us right the way through to December. So, um, they really kind of nailed that, that kind of Christmassy feeling, uh, that family Christmas feeling, which is, which is nice and beautiful. Um, it's Robin Shaw, who we've had on the podcast before. A few times. Yeah, yeah. Robin's no stranger to the podcast. Uh, he's, he's, he's long been an art director and director for, for Lupus Films. Um, he got his, um, he, got his first job at lupus films i believe i might even get in this bang on or i'm getting it completely wrong when now do you remember if uh well over 10 years ago now when iron brew did that parody of the snowman yeah and it was basically the snowman and this chav kid um that was robin shaw mm. that directed that and lupus film saw that just when they were making the snowman and the snow dog and they didn't know how to make it look like the original snowman <laughs> whereas robin just did it yeah. and the answer was i just did it all with pencil crayons <laughs> so the the whole film had the you know the whole sequel had to be made just with pencil crayons but obviously robin came on board for that which was great um and yeah he's directing mog um which is you know, like it's going to be the big Christmas film this year. It's on the cover of the Radio Times. How much more Christmassy do you want, Ben? Mm-hmm. It re- I, th- I think it's a cut above. Um, give it a look, even if you don't like cats, even if you're a dog person, because um, the the animation in it is absolutely superb. And there's some really smart camera moves for that that kind of you really take on board the cat's point of view. Uh, and I was really brought along straight away by this kind of the the way the camera locked on the cat's face and you kind of followed the background and the background was moving. You know, we were talking about laborious animation earlier on. It kind of evokes that as well. Um, it, it really is a beautiful Christmassy film and um, yeah, sure to be one of those kind of Christmas classics for, for many years to come. Um, and hopefully we'll see more Mog because there were lots of Mog books apparently. Um, uh, yeah. I think one of them Mog dies, but don't worry, Mog doesn't die in this. I'm I'm reassured. Ah, spoiler alert! <laughs> spoiler alert! Fantastic. Shall we hear from Robin Shaw and Ruth Fielding of Lupus Films? Yeah. I suppose my first question being is that I'm I'm very much a dog person. Yes. Why did I love this film? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's that is interesting actually. Because I'm a dog person and a cat, but I, I don't see them as being mutually exclusive. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, when we started this, I had a dog and a cat, and I realised that both both of them uh, have been sort of absorbed into Mog's character. There, there are some 
some there are some aspects of my dog's character. He's not the brightest. He's very nice, but he's not very bright. Um, uh, that have ended up yeah coming out in mock. So maybe that's why. Yeah, you see a lot of that. The, the character, obviously, it's it's a cartoon cat. I'm allowed to use the word mm. cartoon. It's an animated cat. <laughs> Yet you've very you very clearly stuck to the rules of this is an animal. This is not a. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it's not got hands. It's got paws. Well, it's interesting because yeah. I, I bristled when you said it's a cartoon cat because I've been busy telling people for the last year that it's not a cartoon cat. Think of it as a real cat. It has to be. It has to be convincingly feline. Her, her, her Judith's uh, illustrations. Um, when you look at them, even though it's very much an illustrated cat, you know, with, with enlarged eyes and you know, a very sort of graphic set of features, um, the drawings uh, really capture the way a cat moves, behaves, um, positions she gets into, just, I don't know, even her responses to things, it, her expressions in her face are actually really very feline, they're quite, they're quite complex. Mm. And f extremely well observed as mm. well. Let, let's not forget that Mog was their real cat, yeah. was Judith's family cat and Matthew and Tosi's cat. So, you know, one shot in the film and page in the book which springs to mind is when, when Mog is treading on, well, you've got her treading on drawings in the, mm. in the film and sort of, you know, bustling her <coughs> bum up to... Um, annoy Debbie, uh, you know, that's just such a typical cat movement, isn't it? They always want to get in your face and on what you're doing, whether you're typing on a keyboard or whatnot. So, yeah, I think that the, the humour and the behaviour of cats is extremely well observed mm. in, in both the book and the film. But if it were, you could have gone down the route of, of it being a cartoon cat. Uh, and, you know, Maybe that could be a valid route to take, I don't know, but, but it's, it wouldn't feel right with, with, with Mock. Because the minute you start making a cartoon character, they become a thing, uh, they, they become, well, in Mock's case, someone not who they are. Mog is, is a cat. Mog is, it's interesting because in the narration in the book, in the books, um, is written from her point of view, but not in a way that suggests she is anything more than a cat. She's not human, she's a cat. She doesn't have the, uh, the intelligence of a human being, the temperament of a human being. She has the, 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 the very, uh, you know, simple, I'm the center of the universe temperament and intelligence of a cat. And um, if you had a cartoon character, it would change that completely. I, don't, I, don't, I think it would be very difficult to do, in fact. We, we all saw Tiger who came to tea, and we know about the, the pencil mileage on the stripes uh, and the, 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 the patterns and everything. Uh, you've done it all over again with Mog. <laughs> and more, yeah. One of the reasons I look so tired is because it's actually... It's actually there are more characters. Quite simply, there's a lot more exterior stuff which requires more drawing. Um, I also think, um, yeah, we've done it again, but I think uh, it's not just... A, I would, I'd never be happy just saying, oh, good, we've done it before, we just did the same thing again. I, I wouldn't do that. I think, I think this is bringing... This is making new discoveries in the subject matter and in the style. The style of... 
of, of Judith's illustrations and how you can play with the compositions of her illustrations because there's a big difference between the interiors and the exteriors, for instance. Um, how you can generate new imagery um, extrapolated from her illustrations. Uh, it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more going on. And there's a, uh, so yeah, haven't done it again, done it bigger. <laughs> but also a, a completely different perspective. Obviously, Tiger. Yeah. I'm only comparing to Tiger due to the the, the Judith Kerr uh, comparison, obviously. Yeah. But uh, Tiger was very much the little girl story. This is Mog's story, and so there's moments mm. where it looks like Mog is wearing a GoPro, or it's, <laughs> it's filmed from below, and you can you've got all that wonderful kind of uh, perspective uh, from 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 down on the floor. Or uh, that was yeah. that was something I, I wanted from from the word go. Um, when we first got Joanna's treatment, in fact, I, I made, started making little sketches um, uh, just alongside, <coughs> alongside the text of how how to capture it, how to uh, filmically to make it really be Mog's story. Because you must never, it, with Mog in the in the text, um, when you read the books, you're never too involved with the family. Yes, you're with them and you're a human being reading the book or reading it to a child or whatever, but um, you're never completely with them. You're with Mog. Mm. And uh, so I've said to animators all along, it's not their story, yeah. it's Mog's story. And it's Mog's Christmas. Yeah, you know, Mog's It's not Christmas. the family's yeah. Christmas because Christmas wouldn't be the same without Mog. It's Mog's Christmas. And so the film is told completely, you know, the story is told completely from her point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, we kind of draw out a couple of times, certainly when we're, you know, going mm. to buy the Christmas tree and whatnot. But um, yeah, it's certainly her film and her calamity. You know, you were saying that, you know, she creates this sort of Charlie Chaplin-esque um, feeling. And that is Mog's personality throughout the the whole series of books is is the the scrapes and the 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 chaos she unbeknownst to her creates around her and leaves behind so this is a another uh, christmas film uh, from lupus films carrying on with that tremendous legacy that 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 was kind of i say we've had these we said this in interviews before picked up from the days of uh, tbc and mm. and john coates and uh, from this do you look at a, a, a property like like Mog or a, a character like Mog and think this is a film that, that would have been done uh, at the early days of Channel Four? Are you looking for a particular timeless element to something that would make it this to, to make a Christmas classic? Um, mm. You have to find properties that are talismanic. That's not my word, <laughs> um, but a certain exec <laughs> mentioned that word when you know looking for telling us what they were looking for in in christmas specials and you know there are not many books left that have that classic quality that have been around for you know 40 50 years um so yeah we're always on on the lookout for what the next thing should be um i mean i don't yeah i'm sure tvc could have made it they wouldn't of you know what I am very proud of is having made this film now with the crew we've made now as we were touched on it before about you know not just we have some talent that you know worked on the 
original snowman, obviously mm-hmm. Joanna and Richard Fordry, who, who helped Robin the storyboard for this film. But we've also got a lot of new talent working on this film that you know have have never worked on a hand-drawn animated film before. So you know, we're hoping we're training the next generation of. <laughs> Of, uh, I, think I think it's tricky any kind of comparison with with TBC um, because it's it's kind of come about um, um, just through history and circumstances and the fact that we're doing um, Christmas specials for Channel Four, mm-hmm. which people always associate with the snowman. But I I certainly. I think um, what we're doing, especially with Mog, actually, is 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 because if you make comparisons with TVC, it almost sounds like a, a nostalgic mm. impulse, and I, I don't feel nostalgic at all about what, what we're doing here. I think we're um, whilst it it ha- it's all traditional techniques and everything, we're um, we're pushing the style, pushing the 2D style in ways that I don't think would ever have been done um, with uh, pencil and paper and cell. And we're pushing um, the technology using yeah. you know, TV paint in a way that's never been seen before. Did, did Martin show you his paper chain? Absolutely. I, that was, that was going to be another, uh, another question is that, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a wonderful marriage of of, of old and new that's still the feel of pencil on paper and that's the first step. Well, I just wish I, we'd had this you know when I first left art college because uh, yeah. it, it's just the most extraordinarily liberating um, time to, I think to be to doing proper traditional 2D animation where you're in, instead of thinking okay I've got to have this and this and this and then go and compare you can just draw it we have the software now where you can just draw you can make your own brushes I have I've got oodles and noodles of tools that I've made and, um, that I you know, give out sparingly because I don't want everyone making that stuff <laughs> but um, it, it's it's quite extraordinary and and feels to me it feels in, the most exciting time uh, there's ever been in 2D animation uh, because of it actually what well, for me certainly and for lots of the people upstairs who who even now um, are um, think oh it's got to be done in post or it's supposed to be done in comp or it's got to be uh, a certain way no you don't have you can just you can, look, you can draw that you can draw it and it moves and you can do it in colour and it's yeah it's just fantastic and something like this uh, Mock's Christmas um, it is the perfect medium for really is so we've We've um, we've seen Mog at Christmas. Uh, I don't think I've had enough though. I'm wondering now that is there going to be are there going to be more Mog? Is it within the ambition of Lupus Films to make more adventures with Mog? Yes. That would be nice. Yeah. Uh, as I was saying earlier, um, you know, it is nice to have a character who has um, a life outside the one thing you're making. Yeah. Um, no one dies, no one melts. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did see Goodbye Mog on the side up there. Please don't do that next time. Don't break my heart. Don't break my heart. That's wonderful. One of the things that I noticed in the film, people watching will notice, is the high street. 
Yeah, mm. uh, very familiar high street. Uh, are we are we seeing? And I, I said this earlier on, uh, as kind of a joke, but uh, an extended kind of Kerniverse. Really, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Why not? Well, it's all vaguely. It, um, her world is is vaguely based on Barnes of a certain you know, um, era, and um, why can't we do the same thing? It's it's not. But I should hope and imagine that a lot of the kids who watch this will also have seen the Tiger Games Tea at some point. And while they may not be on the lookout for um, Sophie and her mummy and daddy in the cafe, they might just spot her. Um, if they're beady eyed enough. And kids are much more than adults. So coming outside of the house and into the shopping street allows us an opportunity to meet other characters who may be uh, more diverse than the family themselves and therefore yeah. you know enables us to sort of widen out the, the scope and the representation of diversity in the film that we can't necessarily do within the confines of, of the story as it's told in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very important to both ours and Channel 4. Um, Fantastic. Obviously, using uh, Judith's work, you worked with her for, for The Tiger Who Came to Tea, and, and, and you work very closely with the estate now to, mm. to ensure that, that that legacy continues. That must be quite a, uh, both a challenge, but also it must be quite nice to be a part of that, being mm. part of extending the legacy of, of, of somebody like Judith who had an extraordinary life and created extraordinary work. It's nice being trusted mm. um, to do it. Um, and it's, it is a privilege, actually. I hadn't yeah. really thought about it until you just said that, but a privilege to be part of the team, as it were, that is continuing her legacy, because obviously it's not just this film. There's a stage show, there's licensing and merchandising, there's the you know, all the publishing, there's the whole team at HarperCollins, but it, it is a real privilege, and it's been a privilege to be, to work with Matthew and Tacey, Judith's children, because, you know, when they, sadly when their mother died, you know, the, the estate was left with them, and it's a, a lot of responsibility on their shoulders to then decide what's best, you know, what would their mum want, and we've worked very closely with Matthew particularly on the script and Tacey more on the visual side to kind of make sure that they are totally happy with mm. how we're portraying mm. their mother's work so yeah delighted to be team and it wouldn't feel right it's quite interesting actually that there are things that they uh, they have spotted um, uh, what May come across as may seem like minor things, but they're just little details. Is oh no, no, uh, Mog wouldn't do that. Mog would do this, or or Mrs. Thomas would say this. It's 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 very very reassuring to know that you're sort of being um, helped to stick in in the kernel, stay in the kerniverse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, everyone gets to enjoy uh, their own visit to the. The Kerniverse uh, this, uh, <laughs> this Christmas. Uh, although it is August at the time of recording, I want to say thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> thanks, yeah. Steve. thanks for talking to Squiggly today. And we're all looking forward to Bob's Christmas. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you to Robin Shaw. 
and Ruth Fielding of Lupus Films there. And you'll be able to watch Mog's Christmas at 7.45pm on Christmas Eve on Channel 4. Check it out. Well, I think uh, that's a appropriately seasonal note to end on. Mm. Yeah, just one plug from me. Uh, entries for Manchester Animation Festival 2024, they're open already. We've opened them up nice and early. Say what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you've got until the 1st of May. <laughs> um to to uh submit your film for the early bird deadline so um yeah so if you've got short film student film immersive film commissioned film uh submitting to the submitting uh to the competition you'll be able to go on filmfreeway.com slash manchester animation festival um and submit to your heart's content and yeah math's going to be back between the 10th and 15th of november next year yeah there's no stopping me I just want to stop. <laughs> well, you can't. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Final plug, the squiggly book independent animation, developing, producing, and distributing your animated films. A treasure trove of inspirational insight from some of the best names of the indie animation scene, including Kirsten Lepore, Bill Plimpton, Signa Bauman, Robert Kondo, Dice Sumi, Robert Morgan, Joseph Wallace, Don Hertzfeld, Pez, David O'Reilly, literally dozens more as well as festival programmers, producers, curators. It's very dense. And it's on sale from now through to January 5th. That's right. If you buy it from Routledge.com, they've lopped off a whopping 20% off the usual price. And there's free international shipping as well. What a holiday treat for yourself or the indie animation enthusiast in your life. Thanks for joining us for this last Squiggly podcast of 2023. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be back in the new year, I expect, unless there's some kind of apocalyptic event. I'm pretty sure we're going to keep soldiering on. <laughs> uh, until then, keep an eye on our socials. We're on Instagram at Squiggly Animation, Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine, and we are on <sighs> X <laughs> at Squiggly. And the website, of course, is squiggly.com. That's where you go for all the news and reviews and interviews and features and featurettes and vignettes and videos and all sorts of goodies that we like to bring you from the animation industry across the world. Well, that's it from us. I've been Ben Mitchell. Uh, I've been Steve Henderson. And until next time, merry animating. I made it Christmas. Yay! Ho, ho, ho. Hurrah. <laughs> <laughs>